Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, shooting down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In your ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I am your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. How you doing this morning, tomorrow? I'm doing fine this morning. How you doing this morning? I don't morning? know. I might want to kill a puppy, but you know it's okay. Oh, don't do, don't don't <laughs> don't hurt nobody. <laughs> don't hurt nobody. Oh boy. Stressful morning this morning. That's we, all. It was We're, funny because Jamaro said he's been like up and he's like ready to go, yeah, and I'm like I, I, I don't been get up yet. and ready to go until I sit in the chair and like then we start talking. Oh, see, I was up last night, all night, basically doing the news. When real men can't sleep, real men do the news. As I've said before, I tend to be an insomniac, and so for me, it's like, well, let's get some work done. And so at like 12 o'clock show, three in the morning show, 4.30 show. And of course people are like, is this, are you on the phone lines? Like, what, what, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, how is it five o'clock in the morning and I'm seeing you here, you're supposed to be on the phone lines in two hours. Um, but no, I am up awake. I've prepared very well for the show because I basically was doing that stuff all night and doing yep. those. Um, so I'm here and aware, not to mention, you're Triple, hearing aware. Three, yeah, right, exactly. Triple shots. And folks, Jamaro says he hasn't had coffee in a long time. I'm so gonna we're going to see wired. how this turns out. Wired. Love wired. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of fun topics today to talk about, particularly in your national news. Former President Donald Trump Thursday filed a 24 million federal lawsuit alleging that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee launched a wide ranging, unthinkable plot in the 2016 election to smear him and his campaign as colluding with Russian officials. In the suit filed in the Southern District of Florida, Trump claims the goal was to fabricate a scandal in an effort to cripple his bid for the presidency. The 45th president alleges that the scheme concocted by Clinton, the Democratic presidential nominee, and others falsified evidence, deceived law enforcement, and exploited access to highly sensitive data sources and was so outraged, was so outrageous, subversive, and incendiary that even the events of Watergate pale in comparison. Oh, see, I have a different take. Like, my, I did bookmark. the same thing. Yeah, bookmark. bookmark. Virginia Thomas, the wife of conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, urged former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to work to overturn the results of the 2020 election in a series of text messages. The Washington Post and CBS News reported Thursday the messages were handed over to the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, who said without elaborating that they had obtained copies of the messages. The messages sent in the weeks following the November 3rd presidential election show that Jeannie Thomas advised Meadows to make a plan and release the Kraken in a bid to preserve <laughs> Donald Trump's presidency, the Post and CBS News reported. The wife of a Supreme Court justice, folks. With inflation raging and state coffers flush with cash, governors and lawmakers across the U.S. are considering a relatively simple solution to help ease the pain people are feeling at the gas pump and grocery store, sending money. At least a dozen states have proposed giving rebate checks of several hundred dollars directly to taxpayers, among them California, Kansas, and Minnesota. Critics, including many Republican lawmakers, say those checks won't go far enough given the pace of inflation and are pushing instead for permanent tax cuts. That'll probably take a good year and a half to figure out. 
Meanwhile, to give money to Ukraine, blink of an eye. I just got my COVID test at work in the mail. Oh, you, oh, I was like, dude, three why are years, you here? It's like three years later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, exactly. Yeah. You just got him. Oh, boy. The United States and European Union announced a new partnership to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian energy, a step top officials characterize as the start of a years-long initiative to further isolate Moscow after its invasion of Ukraine. President Joe Biden asserted that Russian President Vladimir Putin uses energy to coerce and manipulate his neighbors that uses the profits from its sale to drive his war machine. Under the plan, the U.S. and other nations will increase liquefied natural gas exports to Europe by 15 billion cubic meters this year, though U.S. officials were unable to say exactly which countries will provide the extra energy this year. Even larger shipments will be delivered in the future. North Korea's latest launch was big. A new intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM, state media reported, and a test leader, Kim Jong-un, said was designed to demonstrate the might of its nuclear force and deter any U.S. military moves. The Thursday launch was the first full ICBM test by nuclear-armed North Korea since 2017. Kim ordered the test because of the daily escalating military tension in and around the Korean Peninsula and the inevitable in an ugh, inevitability of the long-standing confrontation with the U.S. imperialists accompanied by the danger of a nuclear war, the KCNA State News Agency reported. Your holidays today are National Medal of Honor Day, Greek Independence Day, Will Miklem, International Day of Remembrance of Slavery Victims, and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Those are your holidays for Friday, March 25th, twenty. 22. I have one more headline, um, Farron. Um, in, in, I figured, since you had that amazing eulogy yesterday, that out of due diligence... Henry died? Well, I <laughs> <laughs> not exactly. Um, but out of journalistic due diligence, okay. I decided to reach out for a comment. And so I reached for out to a medium. Well, I reached out to a medium in order to contact Madeline Albright to see if she had anything to say about your eulogy yesterday. Um, he sent me back this clip. Look, I'm giving you a heads up. It's disturbing, um, just so you know. Uh, but you all should hear it. Let's play the clip. So apparently, the way he describes it, in the eighth level of hell, they turn you into donkeys. And this is basically her freaking out. Now, it is a tough punishment. It is difficult. Like 500,000 kids. Satan is creative. Who knew? Who knew? Oh, boy. Who knew? Oh, boy. I I I never knew he was that creative. (laughs) They don't describe that in the Bible that way. I mean, why donkeys? It's weird, right? It's so random. And maybe that's the genius of it all. Mm-hmm. Just random. Maybe there's like a frog level or puppy level. Scorpion no, level. there ain't no puppies in hell. Give me a break. Okay, fair enough. But yeah. donkeys, yeah. I mean, hey. Yeah. I could see it. Yeah. But um, how about uh, give that Trump with Hillary Clinton? I yes. am pumped. <laughs> <laughs> I want this showdown. This is going to be great. I and want cameras in the courtroom. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I want to see it. I mean, look, and he's right. He's right. Let's yeah. like, be very honest about it. He is entirely correct. They did spy on his campaign. She did introduce that information basically trying to, well, in two things. One, ding his campaign in the beginning, but also try to rip him out of that office in a soft coup, basically using a conspiracy theory to do it. 
And yeah. the media pumped it up because they hated Donald Trump. The Democrats pumped it up because they hated Donald Trump. And the public was basically hit with us for three years, which was basically nonsense. And, you know, to the testament, it's like, are we really shocked that the woman started the election under federal criminal investigation, um, ended up with a bunch of her cronies going, or at the very least being indicted. And in this case, we're talking about Danchenko and Sussman. Also, I'm not going to go over the board. My monologue is on this. But there's also this kind of weird indignity where they were attacking Trump about stealing the election while simultaneously doing the exact same thing using Ukraine to do it. Meaning the information that they were getting on Manafort. And they were using that information basically to try to attack Trump and to undermine Trump's campaign. Manafort gets locked up. Every time the media talks about it, they act as if these things are somehow related to one another. They weren't. Um, yeah, Trump is going after her. He's going after her. You think it has legs? Meaning even though like many of the elements of it is true, this is like a sprawling, what, 108-page document that import brings everybody in. Comey, Clinton, random people who are in the campaign, et cetera. Bring them all. Yeah. Bring them all down. Go after them. Because you know what? Here's my thing, too, is you had our foreign policy held hostage yes. because of this whole— Hoax. Yes. Basically. Yes. You created more Russophobia crap. Yep. And, and again, the biggest part being that our foreign policy was held hostage because of a stupid lie, because this stupid witch of a woman didn't, you know, wanted to make sure and, and seal the deal. I mean, and, and here's the funniest part, okay? The funniest part was how she's in Philly and she has this whole glass ceiling and she's going to burst through it and blah, 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 blah. Again, I am so done with this first woman comment or this first yeah. woman crap, okay? I'm really done with it because, again, look at little Miss Madeline Albright who got punted down to the seventh layer of hell two days ago. Eighth. Eighth, excuse me. That was the donkey layer. Yeah, the donkey layer. We got evidence from the psychic. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean... The first woman secretary of state, and she was probably the biggest hawkish warmonger. So I don't really even care about gender at this point anymore. I don't. My thing is, is that, you know, this woman and what she did to this country just to make sure that she secured her win, I think is sick. It's disgusting. And all of these people, mind you right now, are back in office except her. All those little warmongers, those hawks, everybody. Let's not forget, too, how, what a sociopath she is. We came, we saw, he died. <laughs> wow. And understand what happened, what she's talking about. Is it whatever you want to think of Gaddafi? Is Gaddafi and removing Gaddafi worth the slavery that resulted, the civil war that resulted, tens of thousands of people? They turned that place into a hellscape. A basket case. And they did it with her. Yes! We were able to murder Gaddafi. I don't care what you think about Gaddafi. You can maximize his worst elements, and you would never come close to the number of deaths, the number of havoc that the country has basically ended up in. And Innocent you wonder people. why Russia's freaking out. Yeah. You wonder why, folks. Because maybe we go into a country and we completely blow it to smithereens and say, well, you got democracy now. You got democracy. Yeah, because you got nothing left. Think about you it. You got nothing. The first black president <laughs> of the United States presides over a situation where they start selling slaves for less than the price of a car. Yeah. How, the indignity of that. And then chest stump as if that's some kind of a win. This is NATO powers coming together outside of NATO in order to affect change in the world. Yeah. High five. 
But but no, how dare you, Dunkin' Donuts and Papa John's for still keeping your Russia's <laughs> your Russian places open over there? How dare you? You need to boycott that. You know, you know what? You know what Russia should do if they really want to be like, hey, let's go for the jugular. Kick out all frippin' American companies out of there, baby. Hey, you know what? You want gas? Ooh, get your companies out. (laughs) See ya. You know, yesterday, too, I was laughing because I have have Fox News on every once in a while, just that I can bear. And yesterday, you have Pete Hegseth, okay? He's on there talking about Putin's yacht, okay? Yeah. And saying how it could, it could turn into a battleship. And, and, and he, th- this guy literally says it. And I was like, how did God not strike you down? He goes, this guy making all of his money on the backs of poor people and then sending them off to go fight in his wars. I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. I could have thought wow. you were talking about an American right. there for a second. <laughs> right. But whew, it was Putin. Wow. And so I tweeted at him. I was like, hey, you human scrotum. (laughs) I I didn't say that. But I was like, hey, you know, like I said, I could have thought you were talking about an American oligarch and somebody so intellectually tweeted back at me. No, they're called entrepreneurs here. Right. <laughs> and, um, right. and I said, which is kind of the point, right? Exactly. Yeah. But then, but then I said, oh, by the way, another man who made billions on the backs of poor people is now dismantling historical man- landmarks with his yacht, a la Jeff Bezos over, I think it's in Sweden or Finland or somewhere over there, but they're having to dis- dismantle this bridge yeah. so that his flipping boat can go through. I mean, he has to sell I his mean, boat. I mean, he's shooting himself up in his space. Dismant- I mean, are you kidding me, Pete Hatsuck? Read a book. I don't think they, I don't, do they not know that the level of wealth of the American oligarchs vastly outsurpasses? No. Not to mention wealth and political influence in regards to that wealth allows. And yet, they throw that term around all the time. It's pejorative in a weird way, despite the fact that it's grotesquely hypocritical considering these guys. And the power that these guys have in the U.S. So, but let's do this. Oh, by the way, put a pin in this. We got to come back to this. Politico writes a story about fault lines. That's my monologue. It's Mother Network. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. That's your monologue. Excellent. That should be good. They write a monologue or they write a um, story about us. They initially ask us for comment. Look, as I said before, you you will get zero oxygen (laughs) on um, Matt's standpoint. So, good. I'm glad you're going to hit that one. Oh, yeah. Let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. Oh, I took it over. I took it over. Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. Hang on, let me find it. Where is it? Where is Ah, here we go. I'm Farron Franzak with my co-host, Jamarl Thomas, coming to you live from our station in D.C. If you guys live in the area, you can catch us on the radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also in Kansas City, kicking it to you at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. Also, if you're digging what our, our what myself and Jamarl are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content, give us the like. Hit that rumble button. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can send a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Feel free to call. Jamarl, what's your fault today? My fault is a fantastic story coming out with Donald Trump suing Clinton 
and a motley crew of other cantankerous characters that were involved in creating and propagating the Russiagate hoax. And this story, I got to be honest, is pretty amazing. And I think to myself, yes, good job, Trump. I would have loved if he would have, you know, narrowed it a little bit to make sure that he hit the people and hit it in a way where he can basically reap the gains of the lawsuit and all of the information that's been revealed in regards to showing that it was false, not to mention the um, indictments from Sussman and Danchenko that basically reveals all of these other characters, these lines going to a Hillary Clinton and her campaign. And so there's that part. But it's Trump. It is unreasonable for me to ask Trump to bring it all in as opposed to kind of going maximalist. And so he is going maximalist. I'll take what I can get. Basically, Donald Trump is suing her for $72 million in damages, which the complaint says is a tally of legal fees and other costs defending against alleged untruths. In another court filing in the case, Donald Trump's attorneys are asking for only $21 million. But basically, right here, the lawsuit is going after. The lawsuit filed Thursday in federal court in Fort Pierce, Florida, accuses Clinton campaign of various campaign aides, former FBI Director James Comey, the Democratic National Committee, and others of racketeering conspiracy for allegedly joining in an unthinkable plot to falsely accuse Trump of colluding with Russia in the 2016 presidential election. Quote, in a run-up to the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton and her cohorts orchestrated an unthinkable plot. One, that shocks the conscience and is an affront to the nation's democracy. The complaint says, acting in concert, the defendants maliciously conspired to weave a false narrative <laughs> that their Republican opponent, Donald J. Trump, was colluding with a hostile foreign sovereignty. The actions taken in furtherance of their scheme, falsifying evidence, deceiving law enforcement, exploiting access to highly sensitive data sources are so outrageous, subversive, incendiary that even the events of Watergate Pale in comparison. And I listen to that and I think, wow, that is pretty um, emancipatory in his rage and outrage. And yes, it's also just so happens to be true. It just so happens to be true. What they're saying here is true. This is shattered on election night. Right here. Right here. She's not, quote, she's not being... Um, all that much self-reflective, said one of the longtime aides who in a call shortly after the election. Instead, Hillary kept pointing the finger at Comey and Russia. Quote, she wants to make sure that all of these narratives get spun the right way. This person said the strategy has been set within 24 hours of her concession speech. Mook and Podesta assembled her communications team at the Brooklyn headquarters to engineer the case that the election wasn't entirely on the up and up for a couple of hours. With shake shack containers littering the room, they went over the script they would pitch to media. And to the public, already, Russia hacking was the centerpiece of that argument. In Brooklyn, her team coalesced around the idea that Russia hacking was the major unreported story of the campaign overshadowed by the stolen emails and Hillary Clinton's own private server imbroglio. Meaning, 24 hours after the election, they had already settled on this notion of Russia hacking. And of course, this immediately leads to Trump. The crux of his lawsuit. It's clearly just emphatically true. And at this point, we've seen many of the people who are involved in it at the very least get clarified and in some cases get indicted. Not to mention, it's worse than that. They didn't just do this in order to, A, stop Trump from either getting elected, didn't work, and not just stop Trump from getting elected at the point in which he was elected, using it as a weapon in order to try to rip him out of that office. I mean, think about what would have taken place 
if Mueller would have used the information that was basically stovepiped into the FBI. All of these people were basically lying to the FBI, trying to get Trump, giving information over to the FBI that was basically fraudulent while working for the Clinton campaign and lying about who was getting them to do what they were doing. Even the Steele dossier and the people who were supplying that information, again, that stuff was rumors and nonsense. And yet it was given to the FBI as this was legitimate information against a president that is doing something nefarious with a country we consider to be the enemy. Imagine for one moment, if by hook or by crook, whether true or not, Mueller would have found anything, they would have immediately called for an impeachment of Trump. And they might have, in that case, just got him. The point that I'm making here is this was no less than a soft coup attempt. Call it what it is. Even from the standpoint of the election itself, this ability or this attempt to try to sway the election in Clinton's favor by dumping a bunch of information it's worse than that even, because the reality of it is what they accuse Trump of, what media, what Democrats, what all of these guys basically coalesced into that one, coal, that, that one narrative, Trump and Russia. While they were going with this narrative, simultaneously, Hillary Clinton was basically doing or guilty, or let's say the Democratic Party was guilty of the exact same thing with Ukraine. And what do I mean by that? You can go to the political article. Ukraine efforts to sabotage Trump backfire. Well, what do they mean in this article? Politico is making the point that the president of Ukraine at the time, everybody assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. You had a passive, submissive government represented in Ukraine. That passive, submissive government was trying to please the incoming president, who was basically going to be part of the Democratic Party. So when DNC operatives go to the embassy and try to get information to hit Manafort with, that information is provided. Manafort gets hit with it. They even go so far as to try to get the president to basically announce or say Manafort's name so they can try to get hearings, again, to damage Trump. Trump wins. And in the process of Trump winning, of course, he's going to take a dim view of that country that is so submissive and requires the U.S. for its very air that it breathes that now you have a problem because you've just alienated the incoming president by trying to help his political opponent cheat you and cheat you in the very specific way that they are accusing Donald Trump of doing. It's almost like a mirror on some level. Basically, do this thing and then accuse the other guy of doing what you're basically doing. This is what was taking place in the 2016 election. And on some level, it's even worse than that. I made this point, I think, years ago, that when all of this started, that the energy of this was never going to stop immediately. Meaning there was never going to be a situation where this stuff gets put into the American public and all of a sudden it just stops on a dime. It doesn't work that way. All of the information that was seeded on Trump and Russia for the last three years that was basically bogus doesn't mean that Democrats don't still believe it or doesn't mean that there is this kind of feeling of issues that are still going into the country within the context of Trump and Russia. The context that was set for the negotiations that Russia was calling for was in the context of a country that had been propagandized to with this PSYOP for the last three years. And one more last point, this notion of integrity or in, of integrity of our elections. Under normal circumstances, it is extremely taboo to hit on an election as being fraudulent or illegitimate. And the reason is obvious. From the standpoint of American governance, the system depends on this idea of legitimacy. And that legitimacy is conferred through the vote, meaning you go, this is the person who I want. And with all of these people, the overwhelming majority get it, and the person gets elected. What happens, though, when the legitimacy of a particular candidate is called into question? 
And for all of the consternation of what Trump was doing, they somehow miss that this notion of saying that a foreign agent helped a guy get in office to win the presidency is an undermining of his claim to the office. This goes so far as to even try to get Trump to pass sanctions, which, again, the context that was set by the Trump-Russiagate stuff was Trump is in love with Russia. Vladimir Putin is basically controlling him like an animatronic robot. And as such, he doesn't want to pass sanctions on Russia because of it, as opposed to the president of the United States, if he indeed passes sanctions on Russia, would be basically admitting that he was assisted of getting an office, which undermines his claim to the office. All of this stuff was taking place within the context of Trump and Russia, and we are still living in the shadow of that psyop to this day. So yes, when I look at this and I think to myself, Trump is doing God's work. I think Trump is doing God's work. Whether he can win the lawsuit or not, I have no idea. But do I want him to try with all powers at his disposal? Absolutely, yes. And for the sake of this republic, I hope he gets her. What are your thoughts? One. <laughs> uh, how do I say this? Go get her. Go get her. Go get her. Go you get know her. what? Like, the, the, and not even that, like, even the Democratic National Committee as well. Yep. Um, all of them. All of them. Yep. You know, it's, t- it's time to clean house. Yeah. You know, I will say this. Yesterday, AOC came out because you had um, President Biden sitting there and however, he was literally on his last B12 shot and he's sitting there and he's like, you know, I would, I'd be so lucky to have the man who I ran before against run against me again. Basically, paraphrasing. Donald Trump, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, sir... At this point, a potato could beat you, okay? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> where you're at right now, like, lowest approval rating. You literally touch everything and it and it blows up. Um, I mean, and, and here's the other thing, too, to kind of eventually lead into the Politico article about us, um, which, by the way, we welcome all of your your articles against us because it just keeps us like Welcome laughing. And by we're the never going to give you a comment, though. No, but we love them. But because... I will read, and I would love look for my name. Yeah, because, <laughs> and send because... my mom the, if the thing say, "Hey, yeah. look, they... exactly." But it also shows how crappy of a journalist you are, Haley Fuchs. Um, because you didn't even flip and listen to any of the shows and saying how Rumble is, how we're a far-right show. We're not a far-right show. Um, I'm a lefty's lefty. Yeah. yeah. We are like left of the left. It is literally in my thing yeah. when I say it. Yeah. In the left corner. Yeah. I in say the in the corner. ladies' corner, but I, I, I'm, I guess I could say I'm a populist, but I mean, lately, like even Scotty Nell Hughes, we're like, she's like, am I a progressive? Like, I've known, I was raised Republican, but I've gone the progressive route oh, more and more and more over, you know, even during Trump too. And even Trump was going progressive. Trump was all about working with China. Yes. He was all for the Belt and Road North Initiative. North Korea, by the way. North Korea. They're deriding him now. went in and had to put some little bugs in his ear? Nancy Pelosi and Dick Durbin and Senator Chuck Schumer, okay? So like Democrats, like we're not far right, Haley, we're against the establishment. So read a book, listen to our show, and then we're still not going to give you a comment. Anyway, that's going beyond the pale. But what I'm saying is like, I just think that all of these people, oh yeah, back to my comment, AOC, you know, with, with, with Biden acting like he would win again. Again, a potato could beat you. And AOC said, which I'm so glad we talked about it yesterday about young kids. Yeah. AOC said, whatever you think about her, 
doesn't matter. She said, sir, you're losing the young people yes. vote. And you have promised student loan relief or $10,000 off your student loans. And what do you do? You turn around, you inflate the price of everything, and yep. you give all of our money to Ukraine. Yep. In my monologue, I have an amazing soundbite. Um, the BBC has these kind of like open mic nights, basically, where... And it's actually nice. I feel like we should do this with our own government. But they bring in government officials and people can ask questions. And one woman doesn't even ask a question. She just says exactly how she feels. Nice. And I think she honestly speaks for the entire West. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll play it at 845. But yeah, or I'm sorry, at 815. But yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I and I think that, you know what? If it's going to be Trump, like, be it. so be it. But somebody needs to sue all these people because... They've it's about wrecked. time. Yeah, they've wrecked this country's from the standpoint of any. Yeah, I, 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 they've ruined yeah. this country. Yeah, they've ruined our values. Yeah, we have to fight for our values. What values do we have? Bombing people back to the Stone Age and killing innocent kids and saying that it's worth it. That's our values. Going around and starting coups, sixty-two coups in the last sixty years. That's our values. I mean, I don't remember ever signing up for that. I don't even remember Congress ever voting on any of that crap. And it's like, you know, and again, you can sit here, Haley, and say, oh, we're, we're they're very against the West. Yeah, hell yeah, we are. Because look at us. We're look at war. what a clown show we are now. And you're you're going to sit there and, and, and you know, and the, the difference between me, me and you, Haley, is I can say this and I'm not going to get fired. If you were to say this, you would get fired, banned from Politico, and never be able to work anywhere else in the world again. That's the difference between you, me and you, Haley. So write that in your stupid book and go take another journalism class, please. Because clearly you don't know how to do journalism anymore because you're just telling the story of what they're telling you to say. So have fun getting your paychecks. Have fun, you know, doing all your little crap and putting out your little thing and trying to ruin people's lives. You're trying to take us off platforms like what you did with RT America and everybody else. Yeah, these are people's lives you're messing with. And I, how da damn you all. Damn you all. Political misfits by any means necessary. Banned from YouTube yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Is it a coincidence? And then going on, they were on Streamcast. Oh, no, now we're not anymore. Thanks to you, Haley. Oh, thank you. Again, you're messing with people's lives. And the minute that you start going after people's lives, I watched 175 people lose their jobs. With kids, everything. Many of them not even Russian. Okay? These people, these journalists, you're all journalists. Don't bite the hand that feeds you, folks. It's really getting annoying. Sorry, I went off on a totally big rant there, but yeah, perfectly fine. Woo! At least flesh. It's just again, these these folks call themselves journalists, yet they're going after probably the most truthful journalists in this country. And the reason that we're at RT America, Haley, is because again, we are told, and we've been in places where we've been told what to say and say what we say when we say it and write it down. And if you don't, you're you're out the door. I've never been told that. Not at RT America. Not here. The only thing that my boss ever told me, and I was even telling this to somebody yesterday, when I talked about my stay-home family with Hitler, and <laughs> he was like, you might want to tone back on the Hitler stuff. And I was like, I was just making a point. He's like, yeah, but people can take it out of context. But it was one of these things where he was like, hey, I'm looking out for you so they don't take something and put use it against you. Yeah, his point is, is get it right. Boss. Yeah, his point is get it right. Yeah. That's our Whether they realize it or not, our standard is getting it right. That's the difference. <sighs> Um, but yeah, their goal was to try to take us off the air by basically right now. See, this is what happens when I get coffee versus when you get coffee. Oh, I manage it a little bit. Better. I like go on a roid rage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, 
you were part of the company that was basically eliminated, basically. Yeah. And there's 170 people that went along with you. Real people, families, kids, jobs, cars. Some of them weren't even on air. And these people are like chest dumping, like, yes, fire all of those people. And then you want us to talk to you? Yeah. Get out of here. It's like, but come talk to us. Come talk to us. Yeah. Do you have a comment about how you're still on Rumble? Yeah, I have a comment, Haley. Go to journalism school. That's my comment for you. Read a book. Do write an article that's against what Politico wants you to do. That's my comment. Oh, that it never happened. Grow some balls and see if you do it, honey. Guarantee you won't. On that, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are listening to Faultlines. Thomas, fired up Franzak. Got her coffee. She's caffeinated this morning. I like that fired up Franzak. Yeah. The new me. New you. All right. And you know who else is fired up? I'm fired up from two Scout Ritter. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Let's get to our guests easily. One of my favorite guests in the morning, especially on the topic of foreign policy and military assessments. He has been the voice of reason and of clarity. I'm talking about Scott Ritter. He is a former U.N. weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. According to The New York Times, he became the loudest and most credible skeptic of the Bush administration's contention that Saddam Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction. You can follow Scott on Twitter at RealScottRitter, but you can hear him right here, right now. Scott! What's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Good morning, morning? Scott. Good morning. I'm a little nervous. I mean, you guys are fired up. (laughs) We've had some coffee this morning. Right. Normally we don't. (laughs) I hit her up this morning. I was like, hey, you want some coffee? I've been up all night. She was like, sure. Give me a double shot of something. I was cold brew, which is like the strongest of the strongest. But so, Scott, I've got a couple questions for you. But I first want to start off with, because I saw your interview, your excellent interview with Mm -hmm. the Gray Zone the other day. With Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mate. And, um... You, I know you're in mourning right now because your wonderful, amazing, good friend, little Madeline Albright, um, was punted down to the eighth layer of hell. Um, you had an amazing story about that, and I wanted you to share with our audience, for those that weren't able to catch that interview, please share. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, Madeline Albright was, uh, you know, she used to be the ambassador to the United Nations for the United States. And so there was a lot of interaction between her and my boss. And, you know, I I can't say that I directly interacted with her at that time, but I knew who she was. She knew who I was, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then she became secretary of state. And, um, we, we, you know, let's just, at the beginning of 1998, we were in a, in a, in a major crisis with Iraq. I had just been kicked out of Iraq, accused of being a CIA agent and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, undermine Saddam Hussein, et cetera, et cetera. All of it falls. I was just trying to do my job as a weapons inspector. But now the question is, what do we do with the Iraqis kicking us out? And so uh, I was invited down to the White House to come up with options. And uh, 
I said, look, we got to get right back in. Uh, you know, uh, we can't let the Iraqis dictate the, you know, who gets to go in, the pace of operations, what we do, et cetera. And there was general agreement. But while we were having this discussion, uh, Kofi Annan, the Secretary General, was in Iraq, um, and he negotiated, <laughs> without us asking, uh, you know, the, the modalities to gain access to presidential sites um, and also sensitive sites, uh, you know, national security in- installations, et cetera. And so the, the inspection became uh, a test of uh, the modalities. And I was picked to head up the inspection that would test the modalities of the sensitive sites. So in the White House, you know, I'm briefing, you know, what our options are. And, and there's a general agreement, but then they throw in a site at the end, the Ministry of Defense. And I said, no, look, we don't want to go in the Ministry of Defense. There's no legitimate arms control reason for us to go there. Plus, Tarek Aziz has said this is a red line. Um, you know, if we try to go there, the Iraqis, this will be war. So that's exactly what we want. Uh, <laughs> while I'm at the White House, Butler's meeting with Madeleine Albright, and uh, they were having a similar conversation about sending me in, um, et cetera. When we get back to New York, uh, we're summoned to the U.S. mission, and uh, Bill Richardson was the ambassador, uh, and he had his deputy and uh, a CIA guy there, and I went up there with Butler and Charles Dulfer, who was the deputy of Butler, and we're talking about this upcoming inspection. And Butler uh, gets up and, and, ha- and shares with us the conversation he w- had with Albright. He, he gets on a whiteboard and he t- writes in a na- name, he goes, a date, and he goes, okay, Ritter, you're going to go in here on this date, but we have to have a confrontation by this date so the U.S. can begin bombing by this date. Wait, wait, just so I'm clear, they were basically using you, a weapons inspector who was basically trying to prevent a war, to initiate a war by forcing you or trying to get you to go into some sites that were already understood to be a red line. Now you're getting it, Jamaro. I'm, I'm, supposed, to, I'm supposed to trigger war. And I said, because said, so we could begin bombing. I said, we? <laughs> Who's we? <laughs> so we don't bomb. <laughs> they bomb. We inspect. And uh, he said, yes, okay, we. You're going to inspect and you're going to create a confrontation. I said, I don't create confrontations. I inspect. The Iraqis create confrontations when they don't allow me to inspect. But my job is to inspect. And if you send me in, I'm going to inspect. You know, that, that'll be my proposition. I'm not going in to create a confrontation. He said, no, 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 you just do your job. You just do your job. But you have to go to the Ministry of Defense. Well, apparently that conversation got back to Madeleine Albright. And she said, he can't be the chief inspector. But by the time she made that decision, I was already in Bahrain uh, assembling the team that we were training up to go in. And, when, you know, I got to tell you, these kind of inspections, especially one of this profile, it's a... Uh, a tough thing because we are literally going in to be taken hostage. Uh, you know that was the scenario each time. If we, we if we push the Iraqis too hard, you know there was a real potential they were just going to grab us, either kill us or take us hostage. Uh, and so I've got to really prepare this team for this. This is this is come to Jesus kind of kind of preparation. So we're having a very intense preparation session where I have to convince them that I am the. I am the alpha dog. I am God. You look to me. You follow my example. You never shy away. You never hesitate. Phone rings, and I'm told I'm no longer chief inspector. And, uh, and this team's looking at me going, well, what the hell are you talking about? You're the alpha dog. If you take away the alpha dog, we don't have an inspection team. Uh, but that was the way it was. Fortunately, uh, every one of my deputies who were very senior inspectors uh, got together without me prompting, and they wrote a letter back to Richard Butler saying, Nah, it's either Ritter or there's no inspection. Uh, we, we're, none of us are going to take the lead on this one. It's his inspection. He's the guy running it. You, you know, so cancel the inspection. We're out. This with Danya. 
whatever. And Butler said, no, no, well, we, we, he went to talk to Richardson. He said, we got a, we got a revolt. And Richardson said, okay, here's the answer. We're going to go over Albright's head. We're going to go straight to Bill, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was in New York City at the time, at the Time Magazine Man of the Year function. And um, Albright's trying to get a hold of him so she can get him to approve canceling me. So Richardson takes Butler, and they go to the Time Magazine event. And it's a race to who can get to Clinton first. And Richardson wins. He has a CIA guy out there finding Clinton, isolating Clinton, getting Albright away. And Richardson goes up and grabs him. And he has Butler there, and he says, look, this is a tough inspection. We need the best guy on the job, and the best guy is Scott Ritter. And Clinton's like, well, yes, okay, your best guy. You take him, Ritter. Ritter's the man. Ritter's the man. We're going to take the man. Go. And they left. Albright comes in and says, it can't be Ritter. And Clinton said, well, no, no, it's Ritter. He's the man. So I got to lead the inspection in. Long story short, we're at the Ministry of Defense. And sure enough, the Iraqis close the door, bar the gates, and say, go to hell. Get out of here. We're not doing this. Meanwhile, Albright's in France at a big function, and she turns to her French counterpart. She says, hey, guess what's about to happen? He's like, what? She said, cruise missiles are flying in an hour. What do you mean? We, get, we got an inspection on the ground. The Iraqis are blocking. Well, what do you mean? How do you know the Iraqis are going to block it? The fix is in, she said. The fix. Well, I'm the fix. I'm the guy that's supposed to make the crisis happen. And I sit down with the Iraqis, and I'm always very honest with them. I said, you guys do know what's happening right now. I said, if you don't let me in, okay, the second I leave this site, Baghdad goes boom. Everything goes boom. You probably won't be here tomorrow because you're going to go boom. I said, that's not what I want. I want to get in there. I want to inspect it. But it can't be a joke inspection. It's got to be a real inspection. You're going to have to trust me that I'm only going to do the job I'm supposed to do. And we had a long conversation. Eventually, Saddam Hussein told Tarek Aziz to tell the oil minister to let me in. And I was escorted by the Minister of Defense, and my team went in, everybody, and we did the inspection the way it was supposed to be done, and the war was stopped, and Albright was sitting there holding an empty bag. Well, she hated my guts. Literally hated. Did she call you a dirty Serb? <laughs> that's, that's kind of her go-to line for people. Did you know that? Got to get that clip. I heard that. I heard that. No, she, but what she did is she put the kibosh on me. Uh, uh, she put a ban on me going back in, and... Uh, in August, I was supposed to go in and lead another very controversial inspection. I went in with Richard Butler. Uh, the Iraqis basically said, we're not going to work with Butler anymore. And uh, I told Butler, we can't allow this to happen. You got to let me do this inspection because we dictate the pace of operations, not the Iraqis. We determine what's right, not the Iraqis. We need to make, if there's going to be a war, it has to be about the principle of inspectors doing their job. It can't be about Richard Butler being kicked out of Iraq. And uh, he agreed. And so I stayed. My team was ready to go. Albright makes the phone call. Butler pulls the team. Um, I resigned. I, I came back and I said, no, that's it. Uh, the United States doesn't get to do this. And I resigned. And I, you know, I was getting ready to testify before the, uh, the U.S. Senate. It was supposed to be a joint testimony with me and Madeleine Albright. And she's denying everything. No, we never interfered. Ritter's line. I said, great, come testify. <laughs> I got all the receipts, man. Let's, let's go. Now, she and William Cohen, the Secretary of Defense, well, they both backed out. They both backed out. And Joe Biden was so pissed off that he, can I say that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's, that's when Joe Biden, you know, you know, Scotty Boy doesn't want to get in. Scotty Boy's throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, that's why they get the limos. You don't have the paycheck. You operate above their grade. I mean, the whole thing. What's Scott, what's amazing about that is the image that they're basically crafting around what they were basically trying to do in actuality. Meaning, in actuality, they were trying to create a pretext by which they can attack Iraq. 
in the public sphere, oh, we're just trying to get, um, we're just trying to check to see if they have weapons of mass destruction and we're just sending people in to do that. I mean, that's astonishing. Is that basically the typical way that politics is run on stuff like this? Basically when a pretext is trying to be set to like kind of use these mechanisms and use these various people um, in order to push an agenda along. Because that's basically what it sounds like was taking place. Look, from 1992 on, uh, even late 1991, it was obvious to every inspector that the U.S. had no interest in us accomplishing our disarmament task, that our job wasn't there to disarm Iraq. Our job was there to create the preconditions for continued economic sanctions, the undermining of uh, Iraqi security, and the eventual overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Everybody knew this. And what we had to do as inspectors is, you know, we can't control the, the big arrow politics that's taking place above our head. All we can control is the integrity of the operation that we are assigned to do. My job was to go in, do an inspection aggressively if necessary, that conform with the mandate set forth by the Security Council of the United Nations. How the Security Council chose to deal with that reality was their business not my business. But unfortunately, their business became the Iraqis' business, and the Iraqis looked at me as if I was a tool of you know, these, uh, these, 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 this power politics that, that was going on. But the bottom line is Madeleine Albright had to, had to apologize. It was one of the great apologies of all time. She had to write an op-ed. Uh, so did Joe Biden, um, apologizing for what he said, Madeleine Albright, because the facts were on my side. In the United States, simply the government did not want to get into a long, drawn-out debate about the facts. So they finally just said, yeah, Ritter's right, and then we're never going to talk about Ritter again. And that was their strategy. Well, even the New York Times, you know, according to the New York Times, you became the loudest and most credible skeptic of the Bush administration's contention that Saddam Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction. But then did their article and then, see ya. (laughs) (laughs) See you later. We can't bring you up again. (laughs) What Colin Powell said, uh, Right about that time, when someone asked him about what I was saying, he said that um, I'm no longer in the loop. Um, I no longer have access. Um, my information, while it might have been uh, accurate when I was in, uh, was no longer accurate. Therefore, there's no need to listen to Scott Ritter anymore. So you don't have access to, like, the Russian playbook? <laughs> well, well, apparently in this case, I didn't have access to the U.S. playbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Wow, Scott. Thank you for that story, yeah. man. That's amazing. I, I wanted to make sure that our viewers listen to that. Yeah, um, the personal experience is is always great. Yeah. Um, was she to... as evil as did, was she as evil as she looked? Yes. So no, she... she looks like a little gremlin. Yeah. What was she like in person? I mean, that's a good point. I mean, like you know, it's just a mean. She's a mean spirited, bitter old woman. I mean, I, I hate to say that because you know most old women that I know are very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like the Golden Girls. Yeah. You know. <laughs> wow. I mean, we were playing the clip the other day about the sanctions and her basically saying 500,000 kids dying were worth it. And then, you know, missing the point that we ended up having a war a few years later anyway, despite the fact that it's supposed to be worth it to have all those kids dying. I mean, I, you know, you try to fathom in your head what type of person would say something like that. Um, and yeah, she looks the way, yeah. you know, she looks in the way that you would expect her to um, look. Um, but I want to move over to North Korea before we, um, before we close. And China, too. Yeah, and China. So North Korea fires off a big missile, apparently, the biggest. And based on the height that it travels, it gets across that if they flatten the plane of it, that it basically can hit anywhere in the continental United States. This created a collective freakout and butt puckering from 
across the media space, basically screaming headlines, continental missile got hit United States, ICBM, et cetera, et cetera. What is Biden going to do? Uh, but I, I, my contention has always been that North Korea is a rational actor and that these are set for defensive purposes mainly. And I was trying to make this point. And first, before going further than that, do you agree with that? And what is your take on just the context of this in general? What are your thoughts? First of all, North Korea is a, a rational actor. Um, they're dealing with a, with a situation where the United States has organized uh, the, the so-called Western world uh, into strangling North Korea to death. Um, the North Korean leader, uh, Kim Jong-un, recognizes that his country uh, has, has dire economic uh, problems that must be addressed going forward. And he wants, he wants to do that. But he can't do that so long as the United States continues to strangle North Korea and so long as there's a state of war on the Korean Peninsula with the, with the South. Um, he had built a nuclear weapons capability that was, uh, you know, that had, it was deterrent in nature, meaning he knew that the United States and South Korea had been you know, taking, uh, practicing war games every year. And, you know, we say, oh, it's just guys coming across the beach. We never talk about the, uh, the, the war game that has the United States sending in a decapitating first strike uh, with our Air Force. And the fact that every year we fly this strike package right up to the border and then veer away, uh, knowing that if, we were, if this was real, uh, less than 20 minutes later, they'd be taking out the North Korean capital. Um, and the North Koreans live with that every year. So the North Koreans went, great, you come across the border, we push the button, Tokyo goes by, Seoul goes by, and, um, you know, so be it. Um, and, but, but the other thing North Korea said is, okay, we know that this nuclear capability bothers you. We're willing to get rid of it. <laughs> We're willing to go down the path of denuclearization. But we need a lot to do this because you're asking us to give up the one thing that keeps, keeps us alive. If we didn't have these nuclear weapons, you would have already tried to do regime change. But you can't because you know we'll destroy everything. You want us to give this up? We need guarantees that this is over. That when, 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 when the last nuke is done, when the last nuclear weapons production capability is, is blown up and plowed into the ground, that you will never again go down this path. We exist, and you have to accept that we exist, and you're willing to live with us and work with us. The one guy that was willing to have that conversation was Donald Trump. And for a while, it looked like we could head in that direction. But the establishment, of course, can't tolerate that. And, you know, Trump was undermined from within his own government and from within, you know, the, the Washington, D.C. Uh, greater establishment. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't go anywhere. But for a while, you know, not only was North Korea moving backwards on its nuclear capability, they had also put a moratorium on nuclear testing and on the one thing that Donald Trump said, I, Donald Trump said two things. He said, you can't test nukes and you can't test ICBMs. You can't threaten me. And uh, because if you threaten me, I can't talk with you. And King Jong-un went, okay, stop the nukes, stop the ICBMs. But now Biden's in and nobody's talking to him. But what's happening right now is North Korea is basically saying, hey, we got this missile. Uh, we can now take out any, anything. In the United States, none of you are safe. And the fact is, we don't have an anti-ballistic missile system that can knock it down. So if North Korea ever did fire that missile with a nuclear warhead towards the United States, they're going to take out a city. There's nothing that can stop them. And they probably have more than one of these missiles. So North Korea is saying, this is what we got. Do you want to talk to us now? 
Um, and I have a funny feeling that the Biden administration so bogged down in Ukraine right now, which is the last place they wanted to be bogged down in, um, you know, Biden can't chew gum and walk at the same time. Neither can his administration. I don't even think he knows the difference between a potato and an apple at this point. He might not, but Jake Sullivan does. <laughs> Austin does. And they, but they, they're, they're powerless. Uh, they, they don't have an adequate response. And I'm concerned that the next step that North Korea is going to do is uh, carry out uh, some, some new nuclear tests, um, you know, around um, miniaturizing. Um, oh, the payload, nuclear payload. That they can put, so they can put multiple warheads on this, uh, on this missile and therefore threaten, you know, each missile they launch, they can take out maybe five American cities. Um, and this is a dangerous escalation. Anytime you have nuclear weapons on the table, uh, it's a dangerous escalation. And the one nation that could help us on this is China. And we're in the process of just destroying our relationship with China. So, you know, this is just the, the Biden administration is literally the most incompetent administration uh, on foreign policy. In, in modern American history. Well, we, okay, let's do this. Initially, I was going to go to a video, and that's my fault. I just told them to stop the video. But let's recue the video. And this is this um, Gaddafi option. And this is kind of why I say the rational actor in this kind of situation, because basically, from their standpoint, they're looking at us knocking over governments. They're looking at us coups and everything else. They know they're on our not great list. And not to mention John Bowden saying stuff like this. Let's play the clip. Is it a requirement that Kim Jong-un agree to give away those weapons before uh, you give any kind of concession? I think that's right. I think we're looking at the Libya model of 2003-2004. <laughs> the Libyan model. I mean, and so Kim Jong-un hears that. We saw, we saw he died. That's right. Mm -hmm. He's apoplectic. And this is one of those things that was taking place during the negotiations between the two. Like, which was basically they were trying to undermine Trump's ability to basically have that negotiation. If you remember, they were leaking out stuff. They were even now they're like, oh, Donald Trump was so naive as to think he could get something done. No, that's a condemnation of Biden, the sitting president, not Trump, who actually, to your credit, they hadn't fired a missile since 2017, meaning Donald Trump was making progress on any measure between, you know, success and failure. Um, but I want to move to China. Solomon Allen's. So China has been making inroads into a space that the U.S. will basically consider its own backyard. So with Australia, I guess. And these have to do with the Solomon Islands. They've made a security agreement arrangement. Of course, again, screaming headlines, puckered butts all across the West. What is going on with this? I mean, Solomon Islands, this was something that was within our sphere of influence, if I'm not mistaken, correct? What's, what's the arrangements with this? The Solomon Islands are, are definitely within Australia's sphere of influence, which makes it indirectly our sphere of influence. You know, the Australian government has been involved in Solomon Island politics, and uh, there have been uh, Australian military maneuvers in the Solomon Islands. But the other thing important about the Solomon Islands is it's uh, when you look at the Chinese um, buildup in the South uh, Pacific, um, let's first of all start with the proposition, um, according to the U.S., that they have totally militarized their islands. What that means is um, they, they now have all their defenses in place, that any U.S. attempt to engage China there uh, will result in China being able to employ surface-to-air missiles, surface-to-surface missiles, uh, aircraft, et cetera. These are, you know, the, the, the defense belt is in. Uh, it's a done deal. So China is now operating from a very solid uh, foundation now to project itself forward. And by going into the Solomon Islands, two things are occurring. One, the U.S. response to the buildup in the South China Sea was to develop 
a new class of mobile um, long-range missiles that we could fly into a you know an unimproved airfield and uh, set up and fire at uh, at China and then fly away. And the places we were looking at were guess what the Solomon Islands. Um, so China's just looking at the chessboard, going and check, boom, take our piece off, and they now got the Solomon Islands. And China is exploiting its economic uh, power and its regional power to uh, outmaneuver the United States, uh, Australia. Um, and it, you know, Japan's being outmaneuvered uh, up north. You know, China's just basically winning. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, they they're, they're drinking tiger milk or whatever. Uh... <laughs> tiger milk. China's drinking. Tiger we milk. do have one question from the chat, um, and I actually thought this was really funny. Um, from fighting thirty three two or three three two, Farron, can you please ask Scott what was the sample Colin Powell brought to the Security Council? I have a feeling it was the white powder from George Bush's party stash. Your thoughts? No, it was just... <laughs> All right, we're going to have to close. <laughs> Scott, on that. <laughs> Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. According to New York Times, Scott became the loudest and most credible skeptic of the Bush administration's contention that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. You can follow him on Twitter at Real Scott Ritter. Fault lines, Thomas, Franzak. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, a journalist extraordinaire, American Farron. That means, more likely than not, unless you are in some alternate reality or something, and even then, you will be listening to Thomas and Franzak. Fault lines. We both ad-libbed really weird. Yeah, yeah, that, that went very weird and bizarre. I realized in the moment, I was like, yeah. I kept thinking, every time I read that line, pretend, precariously perched, it trips me out. In my head, I think... Precipitously perched. I think that's so pretentious. <laughs> every time I read it, I think to myself, that is such a, a weird... I don't yeah, even you know... you say it every time. Yeah, I know. It's just... It pretentious. Trips me out. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Precipitously perched. It just feels pretentious. Unless I'm it wrong. is a little bit, but everybody knows you're an eloquent speaker. Uh, I Whereas yeah. I just keep it simple, stupid. I think they used to say, well, my wife was being overdramatic. Fair enough. Whichever. <laughs> um, but let's get into the headlines for today. Water, please, miss. In national news, in the news, in national news, former President Donald Trump on Thursday filed a 24 million federal lawsuit alleging that Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee, launched a wide-ranging unthinkable plot in 2016 to smear him and his campaign as colluding with Russian officials. In the suit filed in the Southern District of Florida, Trump claims that the goal was to fabricate a scandal in an effort to cripple his bid for the presidency. The 45th president alleged that the scheme concocted by Hillary Clinton, the Democratic presidential nominee, and others falsified evidence, deceived law enforcement, and exploited access to highly sensitive data sources and was so outrageous, subversive, and incendiary that the events um, of Watergate pale in comparison. And look, Trump is not necessarily wrong on that. Keep in mind, 
Because of their access to various people who are, let's say, in the tech sector, they were able to spy on Trump as a candidate and on him when he got into office by basically getting hold of data um, at, at his disposal. So this stuff was utterly and entirely outrageous. And yeah, for all of the investigation that went into basically Trump, there's been very little going into the other side of this on how on earth did we end up in the psyop that so dominated and set the course of our current politics, not just domestically, but in a geopolitical standpoint. It is an outrageous, outrageous assertion that has taken place and just so happened in this very specific case, regardless of Trump being somewhat of a carnivore and a liar, in this very specific case, he is true and he is correct. And I wish him Godspeed. You are doing God's work, sir. God's work. Virginia Thomas, the wife of conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, urged the former Trump White House chief of staff Meadows to work to overturn the results of the 2020 election and a series of text messages The Washington Post and CBS News reported on Thursday. The messages were handed over to the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, who said, without elaborating, that they were obtained copies of the message or they obtained a copy of the message. The messages sent in the weeks following the November 3rd presidential election show that Guinea Thomas advised Meadows to quote-unquote make a plan, release the Kraken in a bid to preserve Donald Trump's presidency, the Post and CBS News reported. Release the Kraken! Release the Kraken! And this is a Supreme Court judge's wife. She's had other issues where she's been in that political space, despite the fact that Clarence Thomas is adjudicating various cases. Release the Kraken. Release the Kraken. Steal that election. Steal it. Steal it. Yeah, that's great. With inflation raging and state coffers flush with cash, governors and lawmakers across the U.S. are considering a relatively simple solution to help ease the pain people are feeling at the gas pump and grocery stores sending money, cash, greenbacks, good old moolah. At least a dozen of states have proposed giving rebate checks of several hundred dollars directly to taxpayers, among them California, Kansas, and Minnesota. Critics, including Republican lawmakers, that those checks won't go far enough given the pace of inflation and pushing instead for a permanent tax cut. I suppose on some level, both of them are right, right? I mean, part and parcel of the inflation or part of the reason for the inflation in the first place is all of the money that was basically dumped into the economy. In addition to supply chain breaks, in addition to shipping issues, in addition to, at this point now, basically sanctions. Um, the geopolitical context making everything basically worse. I guess my thing is, is giving people money going to do it? And how long would it actually do it for? And look, those things are in question, even though I appreciate bringing the conversation up. Um, at the very least, should have thought about this stuff before going this route politically or geopolitically. In international news, the United States and European Union announced a new partnership to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian energy. Good luck. A top official characterized as the start of the year-long initiative to further isolate Moscow after its invasion of the Ukraine. President Joe Biden asserted that Russian President Vladimir Putin uses energy to, quote, coerce and manipulate his neighbors, unquote, and use the profits from his sales to, quote, drive his war machine, because that's what Russia is doing, driving a war machine. How many wars has the not going to go there, not going to go there. Under the plan, the United States and other nations would increase liquefied natural gas exports to Europe by 15 billion cubic meters this year, though U.S. officials were unable to say exactly which countries will provide the extra energy this year. Even larger shipments will be delivered in the future. 
I suggest you look at the articles that are coming out from the standpoint of Europe and even in the U.S. media who's looking at that claim and basically saying you have maxed out your capacity basically to Europe. And no, they don't necessarily have another source, at least that we're aware of, that they've articulated where they're going to make up the gap. They are trying to get Europe to stab itself in the genitals, basically. And look, up to this point, they've been perfectly willing to wear the gimp suit. And so we have no idea on whether or not Europe is still going to go this far. We'll see. I mean, at this point, we're just waiting. North Korea's latest launch was a big new intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM for short, state media reported. And a test leader, Kim Jong-un, said was designed to demonstrate the might of his nuclear force and deter any U.S. military moves. Again, made the point many times that this was a deterrence move, not necessarily an aggressive act per se, even though it's used for belligerence purposes. The Thursday launch was a full ICBM test by nuclear-armed North Korea since 2017. Kim ordered the test because of the, quote, daily escalating military tension in and around the Korean Peninsula, unquote, and, quote, the inevitability of the long-standing confrontation with the United States imperialists accompanied by the danger of a nuclear war, unquote, the KCNA state news agency reported. In holiday news, we have National Medal of Honor Day, excellent, Greek Independence Day, Starfish Clap, International Day of Remembrance for Slavery Victims and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. It was weird Starfish Clapping that one, so I'm not going to do that for that. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Guys, can you cue up um, the Clinton video that I sent this morning? There's one more thing I want to play because this just fills my heart with joy. And I didn't get to play it when I did my monologue because I forgot to play it. I'm going to play it now, though. This is Clinton's concession speech. Love this speech. Let's play it. Thank you. Thank you so very much for being here. And I love you all too. Um, Last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he will be a successful president for all Americans. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for, and I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. But I feel... I feel pride and gratitude for this wonderful campaign that we built together. This vast, diverse, creative, unruly, energized campaign. You represent the best of America, and being your candidate has been one of the greatest honors of my life. I sat there watching that with popcorn and hot sauce. Because, you know, for obvious reasons, I'm black, right? Hillary Clinton said black people just love hot sauce. That's what she carries in her pocketbook. But I sat there... And look, I have a certain amount of spite associated with my viewing of that just because of the way they treated Sanders. I mean, they dragged Sanders out as if he was a conquered general in Rome and they were throwing like potatoes and and eggs and whatnot at him. He just sat there and cried and they clapped and they laughed. And we all collectively, silently, if I was an inch less of a man, would have wept a tear myself. And so when I see that and I'm like, (laughs) you guys cheated my guy and then you end up losing And yeah, the context of all of this stuff was on some level set by that woman. Um, And going back to that night, 24 hours after that night, Trump and Russia. Think about that. Like going back to that time period, that stuff was all basically a psyop and it adversely affected our entire context. Um, But the statement that was sent from Politico, 
and Haley Flesh. Haley Flesh. That's where I'm going with. I know her name is Fuchs or something like that, but I'm going with Haley with Flesh. Look, to her credit, she did comment on this, so she knew the name of the show was Fault Lines. That's something that the other people didn't do. And at least she realized that you and I were the hosts. Exactly. So, go <laughs> so star. One um, above, what was it, the Washington Post? Yeah, exactly. Go star for that one. That's a positive development. Um, she quoted, you don't typically use ums when you quote somebody. Don't know why you did that. Wait for that. Yeah. And like, basically, she's like, um, um. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Like, you're quoting me and putting in every um. That's in it. Look, Haley, I'm, I will be honestly, shocked. And you don't say ums a lot. I'm the one that says ums a lot. Well, I would be shocked if she can extemporaneously put a few words together all at once. Basically, rub two thoughts together while talking. And so, yeah, every so often you add an um into the sentence. It doesn't necessarily be, need to be pronounced in the way that it was pronounced. And yes, that's a pet peeve among the entirety of the article itself. And it gets, I guess, a little self, um, you know, self-interest mm-hmm. on my part. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, I mean, look, this, there's a reason why we don't give this stuff oxygen. And at some level, that's why. That article was set explicitly, I would argue, to get us taken off of other platforms and to put pressure on Rumble to do so. That's why the context of it was, hey, circle around, they're leaving to Rumble. And then the fact that political misfits and by any means is necessary basically gets taken off on the exact same day that the article gets released. Yeah, I don't think that's coincidental in any stretch of the imagination. On some level, I would go so far as to make it that that was the point. They were explicitly enumerated in her article and just so happened they get taken off of YouTube on the same day. Yeah. So that's, that's where we are. It pretty soon. You're going into mm-hmm. it very soon. In fact, if you want, we can close it now and I can let you hit it early. Um, but we do have a chat limit. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There we are. One second. There we are. Oh, she contacted Google to take down. Um, ah, I knew it. I knew yeah. it. I knew it. Yeah. 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 I, I get into it in my monologue. I didn't see that part. You're getting ahead of yeah, yourself. Yeah, I didn't see the explicit mm-hmm. part in the article, but fair enough. Um, but let's do this. Let's take a break. I don't want to step on an article. I want her to kind of nail it. I've been sitting here eagerly waiting for her to kind of hit that. I think she's going to do her job phenomenally. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined by my host, Farron Ronzak. And Farron, what, by chance, is your fault for this morning? So we get this message from Haley Fuchs, who's a reporter at Politico covering money and influence in D.C. She was formerly at the New York Times, the Washington Post, went to Yale, and... You can DM her for a signal, according to her Twitter. (laughs) Here's what she writes to us. Hi, I'm a reporter with Politico, and I'm working on a story about Radio Sputnik and RT shows moving to Rumble and other platforms as many platforms kick them off. I'd be so appreciative to hear from you on why you moved to Rumble. It appears that you created your account on Rumble this month. Is that true? My number is... 1-800-I'm-not-a-journalist. <laughs> and my deadline is 5 p.m. today. My email is hfuch at imnotajournalist.com. Thank you. So, the article comes out, and it turns out 
that she knew the exact date that we went to Rumble. She knew we went to Rumble March 14th. The other funny part about Haley, who apparently is supposed to cover, um, again, covering money and influence in D.C., um, she writes how we left March 14th and how then she also went and reached out to um, Google, who got us kicked off of YouTube. She then wrote to Simplecast and notified them how we were still on it. That got us kicked off. And then tried to reach out to Rumble, who didn't respond to her. She keeps insinuating that Rumble is a platform for the alt-right and Trump supporters. However, Haley, if you removed your head from sphincter, you would learn very quickly that Rumble is not being dominated by the alt-right anymore. Rumble is actually being dominated mainly a lot of the times now by progressives because progressives now are asking questions about this war the same way that maybe the alt-right is as well. But the point being is, is that my biggest problem is when you have people that are called journalists and they, 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 they push this whole democracy and freedom and freedom of the press. I, I got into this a little bit before and Again, I had just had my coffee, so <laughs> there was a little bit of attitude and— Definitely go back and check that out. Yeah, <laughs> that's really one for the books. <laughs> um, but here's my problem, okay? And, and um, I'll, I'll get into it the day that, that we realized that we were—that RT was no more, okay? We, we walk in. Mind you, we had been told Monday we were going to have a meeting. That gets pushed to Tuesday. Tuesday, we were told we were going to have a meeting. That gets pushed to Wednesday. So already people are on edge because we have no idea what's going on. Okay? There were num a number of a number of, of, of rants and our raves and articles about, you know, why we're still up and what we're doing. And you had Dan Abrams with his stupid, you know, report on, I watched RT America so you didn't have to. Wow, Dan, again, what a journalist you are. So we have that. We walk in, and basically our boss says that, you know, this is it. Literally, just like 30 seconds, this is it. Then we all get in a line, and we all hug each other, what have you. Our managers are still working there. We don't know what they're doing. But everybody else is gone. We're done. We're getting paid till May, and then that's it. Haley? You and everybody else that you're with are not journalists. You guys are hit peacemakers. And you just ruined many of the lives of 175 people who not only came to this country, for example, and I'm going to put it in the words of a good friend of mine who, who, who actually gave this quote to CNN. They said that many of these people didn't come from Russia. I, I spoke with, I, I worked with more people who were from South America than were from Russia, number one. Number two, a lot of these people weren't offered opportunities here because they were, you know, immigrants or what have you. And RT was a place where they could come and work. And again, there weren't that many anchors. There was maybe five or six of us that were on air. Everybody else was behind the scenes. And they had health insurance. They had a good job you know, good pension, all that stuff. Literally in two months after everybody going after us, gone. And 
It's one thing to go after somebody that you don't agree with. I get that. But it's another thing to go and try to ruin people's lives and, and, and take away their jobs. That's what I have a big problem with. And you have this journalist who now is going to go to all of these companies, again, yeah, journalists, who's going to all these companies and saying, you know, oh, did you see that they're still on your platform? They're still on your platform. Like, like you're this little tattletale. Okay, how old are we, number one? Number two, there, are, there is so much corruption going on in this government. And the first thing you're going to try to go after is a, is a media corporation that you just don't happen to agree with. Wow, Haley, you really dug in deep here. Wow, you really did some great hard-hitting journalism and you dug deep to see what platforms were still on. You can literally go to the Sputnik website and see at the bottom what social platforms were on. Okay, so it took you, what, five seconds? And then you could go and just email Google for a response, just the way that you tweeted at us for a response. I mean, give me a flipping break. Seriously. You went to Yale, okay? It says here, went to Yale. Really? Did you like skip class every day? I mean, but again, the problem that I have is you get all of these journalists who feel high and mighty the, the, here, look at, I'm going to look at you and I'm looking directly at you on this, Haley. You came for us, okay? We're not going to give you any statement, but this is all that I will say to you. You're coming for us one day. One day, somebody's going to come for your job. You watch. With the way this whole censorship is going, you now can't even say what a woman is on Twitter. One of these days, somebody's going to come for your job. And then they're going to come after you and say, do you have a comment? Do you have a comment? Do you have a comment? And you're going to see the wrath of the crap that you pulled along with all your little friends. And it ain't going to be pretty. But unfortunately, I actually have a flipping heart. And I'm not going to stomp on your grave the way that you and everybody else are. You can try to take us down. You can try to say that we're alt-right. We're not. Again, you clearly don't listen to the show. You can try to say that we're Trump lovers. We're not. We actually hate Trump and Biden. We, we, we question our government. And guess what, Haley? What's not being taught at Yale and all these big journalism schools anymore is you're supposed to be questioning your government. You're not supposed to be questioning the governments of other people because we don't question the Russian government. Granted, there are times we probably will, but for the most part, we are here to question our government because we live here in the United States. All we're doing right now is we're questioning all these other governments or not what we're doing. What journalists are doing is there's questioning all these other governments and how Putin's this authoritarian and how, oh, Zelensky's so wonderful. No, Zelensky's an authoritarian too, okay? You are covering a war where Zelensky is pretty much doing the exact same thing as Putin, censoring, which is the exact same thing that we're doing here, censoring. So you're literally a hypocrite. And the fact that all these people don't realize that should scare us, should seriously scare us. But the point, and for all of you watching, honestly, thank you, because I don't, I don't normally get teary-eyed, but the support that we have gotten from RT America and everything when we shut down has helped us keep going. And it's people like you, Haley, that, I mean, if anything, you just give me even more fire to keep going.
because it just goes to show how stupid you all are and how you guys don't question your government. I remember sitting in college classes being told all the time, like, you should, you should never stop. You have to get, you have to, you know, ask your sources. You have to confirm things. We don't do that anymore. Journalism truly is dead. And it's the alt-rights and the fringes of everybody else that have to question the journalists and have to check and keep those people in check. I am have to, having to keep our own journalists here in check. And that's sad. And it's a, it's a big daunting task, but you know what? I'm up for it every single day. I don't care. But again, it's just folks, it's a very, very sad state of affairs when you have journalists going after other journalists. And tr- now, now they're trying to take down the gray zone. They're trying to take down Aaron Mate. They're trying to take down Jimmy Dore. You have more important things to be writing about and, and investigating than what another journalist is saying. Get a grip, get a life read a book, as I always say, and realize that by going other, after other people's lives, karma is really going to find you folks. And again, maybe you need to go back and watch some old Cron- Walter Cronkite episodes or go back and maybe read the Pentagon Papers or the Pandora Papers to, re- to figure out what real journalism is. But again, for the most part, I just have to say thank you to everybody who has supported us. For everybody at RT, we thank you. And it keeps us going. So. That is my fault. I never cry, folks, but again, it's just the outpouring of support has just been absolutely amazing. Not to mention the gravity of events. I mean, basically a mass firing at a result of people like her, basically. I mean, consider for the moment, in a country that's supposed to prize the First Amendment in journalism, you have somebody who calls themselves a journalist, basically a bootlicker for the system, going and saying, hey, hey. Did you know that they basically are still there with the effort of basically trying to get people to, like you said, lose their jobs? How deplorable yeah. is that? I mean, like, I mean, honestly, both people or both groups are within the same context. And we're talking about media here, something that is supposed to be free, something that people can have these difference of opinions and everything else. She doesn't believe that. Is, is, like, is, is it that slow of a news day for you? She has nothing better to do, basically. Like, think of all of the issues that avail this country and all of the things that people are dealing with. And her response is... Oh, I know. I have a cheap story that I can go with this in order to try to get people removed from a particular platform. Get out of here. Well, here's the other thing, though, too. And this is actually what gave me comfort. Last night, I'm looking through and I see Piers Morgan. And he, he again, like I was saying um, in the first hour, how the BBC, they have this thing. And, I, and like I said, I think the United States should do this, too, where it's like basically like an open mic night. <laughs> and people go and ask. Their, they have a bunch of politicians sitting there in the front. And um, people ask questions. This woman had nothing to ask. And this, I think, is what many of us are feeling. And many of us would love to say to our politicians, but we'll never get the chance to. But the tide is starting to turn, folks. And I want you to hear what this woman said. It is probably one of the most poetic and beautiful things that I've heard so far this year. Take a listen. I can't tell you how disappointed I am with your government. I just, I, I really can't express in words um, the mess you've made. Um, I sat through the pandemic and I watched money being hemorrhaged away, money that we could well do with now. I think you're out of touch. You're dealing in millions and millions and trillions of pounds. You know, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. We're up to there in debt, wishing we were taller. 
I don't know what to say to you other than just a lot of you just go. Just go. And, I, and, and this is from someone that voted for you. What a disappointment you are. I mean... What a dressing down. What a dressing down. And you could down. see, I, have, I, ha- I retweeted it on my Twitter, but if you could just see the guy's look where he kind of looks at her, but then when she says, and this is coming from somebody that voted, voted for, for you. you. Right. I'm so disappointed. But you know what? I, I love mean, that. I love even that. though she's over in, in the UK... The same damn thing here. We watched our money hemorrhage during COVID. We've gotten no help. Again, like I said in the beginning, notice how they're talking about, oh, we want to get rid of the tax for gas and give people a stipend. They're going to talk about that for the rest of the year. And we probably won't even see it up until maybe when Joe Biden starts to actually rerun again. And that whole election season kicks off. We'll still be discussing that. But Money to Ukraine, 800 billion to Ukraine. I mean, 13 million, Ukraine, perfect. I mean, the woman's, I mean, and she she left it, because I I know I can ramble, but she left it so short, so concise, and just, you know, said, yeah, you are a disappointment. And she said, and I'm, she said, I'm disappointed in your government because she knows it's not hers anymore, which to me was the biggest tell. I'm, I'm disappointed in your government because it's not ours anymore, and it's supposed to be. I love the fact she did that dressing down. And it's something that makes it, like, more damning that she wasn't yelling. She wasn't screaming. It was just this kind of— quiet. Yeah, this seething, very British way of going after them at a, you know, in a very specific particular way, where she is, like, nailing the main issue that avails her and many of the other people that are basically in the country. And like you said, not just her country. This is like a West thing. It's not just necessarily just isolated to Britain. Yeah, great clip. Yeah. Very good clip. And you know what? Again, the fact that it's not our government anymore, like she says, that's where journalism comes in. And now we don't even have them. And that's the scary part is that the journalists are, are supposed to be the last line of defense. And now you have comedians like a Jimmy Dore and a Bill Burr that are asking questions about the government. And now they're trying to shut them down. So again, what do we say? North Korea State TV. Here we come. You know, <laughs> Joe Biden is alive. Joe Biden likes potatoes. <laughs> you know, I mean, like th- this is what we're going for, folks. But again, God forbid we don't toe the party line and we don't, you know, say what we need to say. And that, that's the other thing is, is, you know, you see shows like TYT, Breaking Points, where they all act like they're independent. But and we were talking about this yesterday where Anymore. you're a YouTuber and not you specifically, but saying like your people are YouTubers and they're independent media. I remember seeing Crystal and Sagar start out. I used to watch them religiously. Now I get their emails and I'm like, oh, spam. I don't care about your new episode because they realize that they have to say certain things in order to keep people watching. Whereas we don't care if you watch us or not, but a lot of you are watching for a specific reason because we're not saying what uh, what the others are saying, but we're also guaranteed a paycheck. So we have that fallback. But again, even if it's from Putin, at this point, I don't care. I'd rather have it from Putin at this point because I know that if it's an American media company, I can't say this crap. No, they would have shut you up a long time. Oh. I mean, keep in mind, you remember Crystal Ball, Eric, um, oh, what is his name? What is his name? The one that went to RT. Um, also, even oh, Jack Huger. Uh, Ed Schultz. Yeah, Ed Schultz. All of them talked about this kind of level of censorship that they had to deal with. Crystal Ball made the point of saying when she was at MSNBC, she did the story on Hillary Clinton that ended up being a no-no, in which case apparently she got a monitor or something saying, 
yeah, from here on out, it, love you and everything else. Talk to this person first before you basically release your stories. Ed Schultz fired because he wanted to cover Sanders. And again, these are people who are basically going. Phil Donahue went against the Iraq War. Went against the Iraq War, ripped him off air. Jess Ventura took him off air. Even Shank Unger. Put him on ice. Uger. Uger, sorry. Shank Uger. In the beginning. In the beginning, same thing with him. I mean, he was on MSNBC. He was doing great at the six o'clock time slot. And apparently he was going after politicians too hard where they called him in the back. But the talk, he, he made an entire video on it. He said, I was shocked. He says, I'm in the back room having the talk. This is what they do when they're trying to put pressure on people to get those people to basically calm down and to not go in certain routes in regards to questioning and everything else. Look, I, you know, say what you will. There is a jaded and a certain point of view that you are allowed to express. And that stuff flows within certain lines. And by the way, the people who don't necessarily see those lines, it's because you are already expressing the narrative. And I love in the chat, who was it that said it? Jeremy Shellman, zero, zero. Shouldn't be called Breaking Points anymore. No. It should be called Breaking Wind. <laughs> <laughs> love it. What's 456 in the chat, baby. I think today is the day we get to 500. We just need 43 more. Yeah. Tell your mama, tell your dog, tell your babysitter, tell everybody. Load up the chat with your dogs, your cats, everybody. Yes. Do it. We can do it. Do it. 46. I think this might be the closest that we've this gotten up to this point, right? Rumble.com slash fault lines. Do and I just, have to cry every and, episode? And by and, the way. And be angry like an Alex Jones to get 500? I'll do it. In the article, she kind of made this point of like, oh, it's such a minor network and nobody is watching. We're getting as many, if not more views on Rumble than we did on YouTube. Yeah, Just exactly. make a point. Just yeah. like, oh, it's a, they're moving to Rumble and they're not getting as much but in hang Rumble. Hang you, right you alt-right wingers. Yeah. Give me a break. Did a video basically trashing Trump, but totally. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Read a book. Read the room. Read, read a journalism book at that. Read the room. But you guys are listening. Fault Lines, Thomas, Bronzat, Poignant, On Point, Heartfelt, and Right. Um, you guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas and Bronzat. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. One of the interesting things that has been coming about with the whole Ukraine crisis, it has been having geopolitical consequences across other parts of the globe, not just isolated in Ukraine. Biden needs oil. Europe needs oil. None of them have articulated how they're going to make up the Russian supplies that they basically want to sanction. So governments that initially were on the outs are all of a sudden less repugnant. They're not canceled anymore. They're actually apt. So in spite of trying to murder Maduro, what, last year or something to that effect, now he's okay. He is the leader of that country. And the oil that is underground is now eligible. Same thing with uh, what is the other country that we were basically um, working with. I guess my point is, oh, Nicaragua was one of the other countries that basically became um, perfectly fine. Iran, the other country, again, trying to expedite the JCPOA. 
I want to talk about this in the context of the countries that are in South America, though, specifically Venezuela. What does this mean that Biden is willing to go this route in order to try to, let's say, loosen the sanctions on Venezuela for oil? And more importantly, will self-interest in the context of oil and economy get undermined? Or let's say, is the previous year going to overwhelm and matter more than releasing some of the economic sanctions in the country? To have a conversation about this, we're joined with Camilla Escalante. She is a TV news producer and presenter at Telesur English, who also works with Keshwan News. Um, Camilla, welcome to the show. It's been a while since I've talked to you. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I'm so glad to just hear that you guys are on Rumble now. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I guess you guys were probably wiped off of YouTube, but I'm glad that more people will be able to reach you now. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we're almost at 500 live. And like we were kind of making the point before, with the dig of, oh, it's just a tiny network and people aren't watching and they're moving. It's well, all alt-right. Yeah. We've gotten nearly 500 people on the course of the show. And this has been a steadily growing audience on Rumble. So they can eat More and more up. people are going to start using Rumble and there are going to be a lot of new um, alternative outlets, including leftists and anti-imperialists and Latin American voices, hopefully, in the future. So I think it's great. And, and by that's the way, what I was saying, because the political article said it's all alt-right and Trumpers. Yeah, and it's nonsense. And granted, it started that way in the beginning, but now you're seeing more and more progressives, I, I feel. but Yeah, we're lefties. And by the way, tell us, sir, had to deal with censorship like that also. I mean, I remember when, I believe it was Twitter or Facebook, one of them basically censored one of the stories that Telesur was coming out with when the U.S. and um, Venezuela were basically at odds with one another. I mean, this is a Yeah, both Twitter time. and Facebook and lots of other media accounts and personality accounts. You know, a lot of uh, media personalities, journalists who have 200,000 followers from Cuba and Venezuela have both been, as well as ministers, of course, and other leading figures of the government have been widely censored. Some of them, you know, just in the last couple of years have had to start completely new accounts. So it's been, you know, it's had a really big impact. So I'm glad that people are talking about censorship now. I'm curious. Let's jump into the politics, the geopolitics of the stuff. I was shocked may not be the right word for it. Amused. Taken aback. Yeah, taken aback. <laughs> Definitely amused with Joe Biden basically going head in hand to Venezuela um, in order to try to get oil because basically he's in desperate need at this point. And going to Maduro, I guess, um, matters less than him basically trying to reconcile the fact that he doesn't have the ability to get that oil from anywhere. So what do you think? Is Maduro going to basically accept everything that the U.S. has done up to this point? in order to release some of the economic, let's say, damage from the sanctions that is basically put on that country? Or um, are the sanctions going to matter more? Meaning the fact that the U.S. was willing to do it, he's not going to be willing to assist the U.S. in getting oil to assist with his issue um, with Ukraine. What are your thoughts? I mean, where's, where's the politicals or the politics around this particular issue? The ball is in Venezuela's court. Venezuela has been demanding, asking for, appealing for dialogue. Uh, they've been wanting to negotiate directly with the United States. They think it's absurd that they would have to go to Mexico or anywhere else to sit down with the U.S.-backed opposition, because this is an opposition that has to go back to Washington and speak to its bosses in order to make any decisions. So, you know, it is using a middleman. So they want to go directly to Joe Biden. You know, the, the Venezuela and, you know, all sanctioned uh, leftist countries in Latin America, they want to have open relations with the United States. They want to have that dialogue and they want to have amicable relations. It doesn't matter if one country wants to dominate the world um, and have a capitalist regime and the others want to have 
um, a multipolar world and they want to, you know, install and build socialism, they think that, you know, we need to be able to speak with all countries, especially our neighbors, especially people that we're in close proximity with, and we can't have countries going to war with us. So Venezuela is, of course, looking out the government, the Bolivarian government of Venezuela is looking out for its people. You know, it's going to take advantage of this situation with all of its maneuvers that it has, that it's been, you know, uh, keeping in store because of the suspension of those uh, talks that was going on with the Guaido opposition in Mexico with the help of uh, mediation from Norway. And so, you know, they're ready to make their demands. And this is by no way, by no means a betrayal of Russia, because, of course, the Russian government itself knows the way in which Venezuela has been targeted uh, to a very, uh, you know, far extent in terms of the unilateral course of measures and the harm that that has caused to the Venezuelan people, average Venezuelan people, because these are not just targeted sanctions that solely affect the lives of some, uh, you know, government officials, but they've affected the ability of Venezuela to get basic supplies, basic foods, basic parts, uh, and this has affected their oil sector, among many other things. And so Venezuela will be making its demands. Of course, the Trump administration failed in its coup attempts against Venezuela, you know, along with in their partnership with Juan Guaido and that far right Venezuelan opposition. And Biden has continued to fail. So now that they know that Venezuela has the resources, oil and other things, they're going to have to deal with the legitimate constitutional elected government of Venezuela led by Nicolas Maduro and nobody else. And because their coup attempts have failed, they have to go in there and beg for the things they need or find a way to work with this government. Really good point. I love that. And Juan Guaido, the Zelensky before Zelensky, basically. I mean, basically what he is. We've also, you know, kind of pivoting over to China because uh, China now is, you know, I always say it's like the one kid in high school that's like off in the corner just kind of watching everybody and, you know, seeing who's messing up and seeing, you know, just kind of, you know, getting a rundown of the room. Um, but we've also heard a lot about China's increased investment in Latin America. Is the reason for these partnerships because of China's like willingness to work with governments that the West deem undesirable, like your Nicaragua and your Venezuela? But again, China is willing to work with everybody. China is willing to work closely with the governments that are working closely with the United States and has, you know, the United States has as uh, protectorates, as colonies, essentially. So, you know, we... Here in Bolivia, we're able to export, um, you know, quinoa, wheat, all sorts of other things to China, and that's a huge market. We're talking about a country, Bolivia, of 11, 11 million people, far fewer in Nicaragua. And so just the, the major cities of China alone have a larger population than the whole of these Latin American countries. So these are massive markets. So first of all, we're able to, um, you know, bring our products up to speed, these small producers here, um, and get them certified for international export. And then they're able to buy it from us. But apart from that, they're, you know, working hand in hand with the governments um, in order to develop our countries and build, you know, critical infrastructure, strategic infrastructure, and, uh, and you know, develop these different uh, sectors. And what's important about the cooperation with China is that they're not, um, in any way or any form demanding or requiring that these countries such as Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Cuba, we don't have to in any way uh, consolidate our uh, policies, our politics um, with China's. We can vote you know, against the resolutions that China supports in the UN Security Council, in uh, the UN General Assembly. We don't have to adopt any of their 
um, you know, and any of their policies, whether we like them or not, is strictly on the basis of, you know, economic development. And so people see an opportunity in that. They say it's like no strings attached and we need to take this opportunity because it's been so long. There are people who live off the grid still in countries like Bolivia. We have a socialist government, but it takes a really long time to, to you know, come up to speed in terms of providing, um, you know, home internet, electricity and running water and bridges and roads that are required to be able to connect the whole country. So this is an opportunity. Um, that's how it's seen by President Luis Arce. Now, you know, one of the big elephants in the room here is that, you know, the whole Ukrainian conflict here and how kind of it... I don't want to say it's it's connected to Latin America, but you do have, for example, the Venezuelan president that's come out and said, hey, they, you know, at least when it first started, he came out and he said, hey, they've been poking the bear, basically. And what else was Putin left to do, which the United States was like, hey, now, hey, now. And mind you, the United States always looked at Venezuela as like, oh, you know, kind of whatever. Um and now they're starting to see that they're a lot bigger of game players than they obviously realize, especially trying to go and say, hey, can we have some of your oil? Um, but <laughs> where, what do you think Latin America's stance is on the conflict in Ukraine? Yeah, the, the United States is completely, uh, you know, freaked out by the way in which Latin America has taken this position. We see, um, you know, the, the countries that we know of, these anti-imperialist socialist countries, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, obviously have been, you know, basically supporting uh, uh, Russia pretty outright because of the extent of the cooperation. We've also seen other countries like Argentina, um, you know, is is continuing to grow its, um, you know, strengthening its relations with Russia. And they're looking for Russia for some sort of um, some sort of relief from the, you know, the IMF uh, crop that it has going on, you know, trying to repay that. Um, and then we also have other countries like El Salvador. El Salvador is not a leftist country and is not aligned with these other uh, socialist countries. But in the UN General Assembly vote, um, that uh, resolution that took place in February, they also abstained. And the United States has noted that. And they've been speaking about that in the Department of Defense and in other um, arenas. And, you know, people here, uh, you know, are leaders such as President Nicolas Maduro, like you said, they're identifying this correctly as an escalation of nuclear powers, that it could be an escalation between these nuclear powers and that it could be very uh, dangerous for the whole world. And they're demanding, you know, diplomacy for a peaceful resolution. They're urging security guarantees for Russia. They've been watching this all along. And of course, not just not just governments, but, you know, a lot of people who've been watching the news and have seen the strangulation against Cuba for so many decades and now for a number of years against Venezuela, they're seeing the imposition of these unilateral coercive measures, and they know the ways in which it affects us here in Latin America and the people of those countries. And now they're seeing those same sorts of uh, sanctions being waged against the people of Russia and Belarus. It may have you know, similar effects. I, I, I suspect that it'll have greater effects on Belarus than it will on Russia. Russia might have some capacity to work around them. But people know here that, they're, you know, that they are a violation of human rights, that they're unilateral, and that they're illegal. And so you know, we saw these, um, the permanent representatives of the UN to the UN took to, take to the UN stage um, from Venezuela, from Cuba, Bolivia, and Nicaragua, and speak about you know this issue during that when that resolution vote was taking place, and they were absolutely condemning the aggression of NATO, NATO expansionism, and you know the United States involvement in Europe. 
And they say that, you know, this is very dangerous. We don't want war or hostility to show up on our shores. And it's related for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is because Colombia, Argentina, and Bolivia, or I mean, and uh, sorry, Colombia, Argentina, and Brazil have been deemed, um, you know, major non, uh, non-NATO allies. And now just about two weeks ago, Biden gave uh, President Ivan Duque in Colombia a special status, a special designation as a major, uh, you know, non-NATO ally. And this means more military cooperation, more access to new military technology on our shores here. And we've already seen, you know, the U.S. government and Colombia partner up to try to wage an invasion and military aggression at the Colombian border with Venezuela. So it's very important that we keep, uh, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean as a zone of peace and keep NATO out of our region. You know, I'm curious. With South America, and South America specifically, the U.S., okay, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this. Going back with this notion of united fruit for a moment, but just historical context. And it basically using um, the fruit company as a way of exerting a huge amount of control over those governments. Well, when the governments basically decide, and the people of those governments, and let's say Bolivia or uh, maybe even Argentina, I forget the other one, I believe Honduras, basically push back Chile, push back on this notion of those companies having so much political dominance and economic dominance in the country, well, this thing came up of those people are socialists and those people, um, we can't allow socialism to take hold because socialism is akin to basically the Soviet Union and those governments must be collapsed. In which case, you have the CIA going into one government after the next and collapsing those governments. And again, this wasn't a situation where these guys were communists or something like that. They were basically Democrats. They just wanted some level of, of um, let's say, access to the gains that were taking place. I was telling Fern yesterday, there were some cases where the company was so dominant, they were owning like the electric grid, train, rail, paying people basically in company bucks as opposed to actual currency from the standpoint of the country. And so you got one of the people, I believe, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but just very specifically, is it possible or is it one of those things that it requires a multipolar world in order for those leftist governments to take hold in South America and to have some level of coverage in doing so. Meaning, if the United States has this level of, let's say, hegemonic dominance, it makes it that much more difficult for those leftist governments, let's say like Brazil or Honduras or Bolivia, all of the which countries were involved in either soft coups or coups just recently. And so is the fact that China has started to ingratiate itself that much more with South American nations, a protective quality associated with it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, China's, um, you know, cooperation economically and otherwise here in Latin America has been has been and will continue to be a great help. And we know that the United States has, you know, um, the dollar dominance is advantageous for the United States, just as it is disadvantageous for, you know, the rest of us in the global south, um, in addition to sanctions and other things that we have to deal with. But I think there's a number of countries here that don't have to wait, and they're not waiting for the you know, change to take place in the new multipolar world to arrive. Bolivia, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, more than anyone in our region, want to use this opportunity and this uh, you know, financial and economic situation and this war that's going on right now to make their productive sectors more dynamic, more fortified towards 
you know, towards a situation of food sovereignty where we don't have to depend on other countries, where we're not affected by the shortages of fertilizer and wheat. And because we don't have big companies like that, foreign multinationals in Bolivia, for example, because of the policies of the movement towards socialism government, we're able to control, have all controlled by the state, by the government that's controlled by the social movements in our case here, uh, making those policies and making those decisions on what's going to happen in terms of our industries, our sectors, and our state companies. And this is really important. They are implementing, you know, some more of the import substitution policies that that President Luis Arce has, and he's always implemented when he was the economic minister under Evo Morales. And they hope to secure and guarantee national supply of essential foods and inputs. Um, but they're also looking to increase exports sports to countries who might need it, not only in our region and other allies, but also overseas. And so, you know, what these countries want to do that are more established socialist uh, countries is that they want to, uh, you know, be able to supply the necessary um, gas and fuel. For example, Bolivia, like Venezuela, is also a producer of fuel, supply its uh, bakers wheat and, um, you know, and fertilizer so that we don't have to be affected immediately or so that we can mitigate the, fa- the effects of, of the, the conflict that's going on right now. This is something that the United States itself, a wealthy, powerful country, is not going to be able to do as well as other countries in, you know, in Europe. And so it's really fascinating that we're going to be able to weather this in some ways uh, better than other countries. And so, um, you know, this multipolar world is really taking shape now. And, you know, these governments are really taking advantage of the situation. Uh, Camila, I want to kind of pivot really quick and and talk about the Falkland Islands for a second, uh, because yeah. you had this whole thing where, yeah, <laughs> exactly, where, where everybody's known it's been under British control. There was a whole war between Argentina and Britain over the Falkland Islands. China recently came out and said, hey, Argentina these are your islands and we're going to recognize <laughs> them as yours. A very big face slap to the UK, obviously. But do you think Latin American countries, you know, could kind of with, with you know, obviously with Argentina kind of getting this, you know, thumbs up from China, do you think this would actually bring about a political block with China and Russia because they're more willing to recognize their national interests like Argentina's view on the Falkland Islands? And also you have China investing billions of dollars in Argentina while they still owe a lot of money to the IMF. Do you think investments like these prompt the U.S. to kind of activate the Monroe Doctrine? Like, they're moving in on our territory. Could this be China's response to all that's kind of going on with Taiwan, do you think? Yeah, I don't know what the U.S. response can be. It really seems like the U.S. is kind of at a loss right now because, like you said, um, you know, just in February... Uh, during this time when uh, China was holding the Olympics, Argentina was one of few uh, that sent a presidential delegation to meet with uh, Chinese officials. And uh, also they went to Russia at the same time and China reaffirmed its support for Argentina to demand and fully exercise uh, sovereignty on the Malvina Islands. So, you know, this is really important that these two superpowers, Russia and, and China, are, you know, supporting the right to sovereignty. Again, once again, we're hearing all of the time, especially on social media, but I'm sure it's being echoed on CNN and MSNBC that, um, you know, that there are multiple imperialisms, there are different empires and things like this. But, 
you know, this is absolutely rejected by anyone who's actually been using the word empire and imperialists for, you know, and encountering imperialist imperialism for a long time. We know that, in fact, that these countries have been coming and they've been supporting, uh, you know, the, the, the positions of, of people in Latin America. You know, there's we have a lot of uh, these different uh, causes, of course. We just celebrated here in Bolivia the Day of the Sea. This is, you know, where Bolivia calls for Chile to uh, to allow Bolivia to access its traditional ancestral uh, pathways to the sea because the indigenous peoples before the, the, you know, the nation state had access to all of these different waters and different resources without these national borders. And this is something that they want to restore. We see uh, China and Russia as more willing to support things like this. At the same time, you know, the U.S. allies, the U.K., still have all of its uh, possessions in the Caribbean and other parts of the world. And so there's this new movement, as you guys may have heard, I don't know if you guys talked about it, but there's this new movement from Jamaica and other countries that they want to uh, separate themselves from the crown. They don't want to be part of the monarchy anymore, and they're calling for an end of that. And these are people who are not even leftists. They're not even like necessarily anti-imperialists. It's just a very common sentiment that's coming around. So it's very incredible at this time that we have people that are calling for these sorts of like decolonization or these symbolic removals from, from that sort of, you know, monarchy, because we know the ways in which that they've been repressive over time and, you know, the ways in which they treat these different countries. So this is something that Russia and China largely have supported. And, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, I completely forgot about that because as somebody who, you, know, you always have the royal family, but you had Prince William and Kate, they were booed by the people in Jamaica. And you, why do you think all of a sudden these these countries are getting this gusto? Is it because do they view the United States as weak under Joe Biden, for example? Or is it just that, hey, time it's time to stop? You know, what do, what do you think that is? Well, the, the discussions have been going on for longer than I've been around. I mean, I'm in a bunch of, uh, let's say, networks with some of the Latin American and Caribbean kind of solidarity groups of anti-imperialists or people who are in solidarity with the Bolivarian Revolution, in solidarity with Cuba, they've been making these demands and calling for, you know, decolonization, calling for separation from the Queen, separation from the UK. They've wanted to, you know, they don't want to be a satellite of any country, nor the US or the UK or anyone else. Um, and they don't, they don't think it's necessary to have foreign military bases on their shores. And Barbados took the first step. Barbados was very quick and decisive about. Um, uh, you know, separating itself from the monarchy last year. And they now have their own, um, I think, prime minister. They installed a new political figure. They don't have to have the governor general on behalf of the queen. And a lot of countries, a lot of these small Caribbean island states had a look at that and said, this is exactly what we've wanted. This is something that we should have done. Why haven't we done this? And so, um, you know, now it's just becoming a huge movement. All the other countries you know, they have some leftist forces, some social movements, but, you know, a lot of them just realize that it's just plain, it's time to do it. Time's we're going to have to stop. Yeah, because we're running up to a hard break. Thank you for this, by the way. Thank you, Camila. Yeah, absolutely. You came in on short notice and we absolutely appreciate it. Camila Escalante is a journalist, correspondent for Quechua News. She has covered Latin America extensively, including the elections of Bolivia and Nicaragua. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, back for the last hour. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth. 
shooting down hypocrisy one lie at a time in your ladies' corner. My trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I am your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. You messed up. You should have said in the alt-right corner. In the alt-right corner. Yeah, I'm not giving her any oxygen. I mean, I... Look, I think I, I pretty much beat her down. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I, there's like literally nothing I, else to I do yelled, it. I cried. Yeah. It was like a hormonal journey Just with you folks. Just got it all out. For my monologue. You know what's funny? If you missed it, you'll be able to see the replay. When I read this article, I didn't read the last paragraph because I got to be honest, after a while, it's just this kind of repetitive, okay, she's trying to get her shut down, blah, 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 fault lines, political, et cetera, et cetera. It's the last line right here. As soon as Simplecast um, team was informed, of the use of the company's yeah, hosting service. was informed service. by you. Yeah, by mm-hmm. her. By her. The last paragraph, basically, hey, I went in Tattletale. Just sad. But yeah, you said everything. Definitely go back and check um, Ferris Fault, 815. You're not going to want to miss it. It's a hormonal roller coaster, but I think you're going to love it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we have 445 people in the chat right now. I think today is the day that we can get to... 500. We just need 45 more. We have an amazing guest more. coming in who is newly engaged as of yesterday. I'm super excited. My good friend of the show, Reese Everson. We're going to be talking about this Trump lawsuit that we're going to talk about in headlines right as we speak. Former President Donald Trump on Thursday filed a $24 million federal lawsuit alleging that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee launched a wide-ranging, unthinkable plot in 2016 to smear him and his campaign as colluding with Russian officials. Now, in the suit filed in the Southern District of Florida, Trump claims the goal was to fabricate a scandal in an effort to cripple his bid for the presidency. The 45th president alleges that the scheme concocted by Clinton, the Democratic presidential nominee, and others falsified evidence, deceived law enforcement, and exploited access to highly sensitive data sources, and, quote, was so outrageous, subversive, and incendiary that even the events of Watergate pale in comparison. This is going to be the biggest lawsuit you've ever seen, folks, ever in your lifetime. And Hillary is going down. Crooked Hillary, crooked Hillary. She's going to go down, folks. Virginia Thomas, the wife of conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, urged former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to work to overturn the results of the 2020 election in a series of text messages the Washington Post and CBS News reported Thursday. Interesting, the day that he files the lawsuit, this stuff comes out. Just saying. The messages were handed over to the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, who said, without elaborating, that they obtained copies of the messages. Those messages sent in the weeks following the November 3rd presidential election show that Jeannie Thomas advised Meadows to, quote, make a plan and release the Kraken (laughs) in a bid to preserve Donald Trump's presidency, the Post and CBS News reported. I mean, the woman's like in her like 60s, 70s. How does she know release the the Kraken? (laughs) I love that. She must have like amazing grandkids that are like, Grandma, release the Kraken! (laughs) Or something that she didn't hear that just like I think by watching. What is that even from? I just, um, the Kraken is the Greek mythology. No, no, but isn't it from a movie, though? Release the Kraken? Isn't yeah, it from like, an Avengers movie? 
No, I thought that was the Greek mythology thing where um, the woman was held up on the thing and the Kraken yeah, was there's going a, after there's her. there's in a movie, somebody goes, release, release the, the Kraken. Kraken. I think it probably Daddy is. Jack. Just... Clash of the Titans, that's it. Yeah. Release the Kraken. That's not Greek mythology? No, but it's, I'm saying it's from the movie. Oh, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Where the line is, release the Kraken. The Kraken, right. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's from re- Greek mythology. Funny. But... Anywho, Jeannie like Thomas. Amped up to get Trump. I mean, she was like, keep him in office. You got to help him keep him stay in office. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I, hope, I hope that like when they go to like discuss this whole thing or if she's like brought on to like, you know, um, like the, the Senate Judiciary Committee or yeah. the House investigates her. She's like, when I said release the Kraken, I actually meant... <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you guys misunderstood. Yeah, that, you guys that totally message. took it out of context. Yeah, totally like, out of context. Yeah, she's gonna have to go with that. Otherwise, she's bucked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> release the Kraken. Yeah. Like, well, oh my God. With inflation raging and state coffers flush with cash. Governors and lawmakers across the U.S. are considering a relatively simple solution to help ease the pain people are feeling at the gas pump and grocery store sending money. If it's so simple and such a simple solution, let's see how simply they pass it in Congress or in the Senate. (laughs) At least a dozen states have proposed giving rebate checks of several hundred dollars directly to taxpayers, among them California, Kansas, and Minnesota. Critics include many Republican lawmakers saying that those checks won't go far enough given the pace of inflation and are pushing instead for permanent tax cuts. Who would have thought Republicans are saying, yeah, that's not going to be enough money. They're always the ones, who's going to pay for that? Yes. Who's going to pay for that? But of course they are went back to their old trope. turning progressive? Hey, it's like, hey, what are we going to do about this? I know. Tax Release cuts. the Kraken. Tax cuts. More tax cuts. <laughs> we need more tax cuts. Exactly. That just seems they're always their answer regardless of what it is. Um, what are we going to do? Tax cuts. In this case, they actually might be right. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, yes, we'll the government is going to get less money, but. We'll see. I think they have enough of it already right now, though, if we can give $800 million to Ukraine. Who you telling? Who you telling? The Kraken. <laughs> the United States and European Union announced a new partnership to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian energy, a step, a step top officials characterized as the start of a years-long initiative to further isolate Moscow after its invasion of Ukraine. President Joe Biden asserted that Russian President Vladimir Putin uses energy to coerce and manipulate his neighbors and uses the profits from its sale to drive his war machine. Under the plan, the U.S. and other nations will increase liquefied natural gas exports to Europe by 15 billion cubic meters this year, though U.S. officials were unable to say exactly which countries will provide the extra energy this year. Even larger shipments would be delivered in the future. In North Korea, the latest launch was big. The new intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM, state media reports, in a test leader Kim Jong-un said was designed to demonstrate the might of its nuclear force and deter any U.S. military moves. The Thursday launch was the first full ICBM test by nuclear-armed North Korea since 2017, when Trump was in office. Kim ordered the test because of the daily escalating military tension in and around the Korean peninsula and the inevitably of the long-standing confrontation with the U.S. imperialists accompanied by the danger of nuclear war, the KCNA state news agency reported. Your holidays today, National Medal of Honor Day, Greek Independence Day, an International Day of Remembrance of Slavery Victims and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Those are your... Headlines for Friday, March 25th, 2022. That last one is so grim. The Atlantic slave trade. 
It's yeah. like, oh, oh, oh Dr. the Scott, holiday. The one. I thought, I thought like, you were talking about the ICBM. No. Well, that is kind of also grim, too. Basically, them shaking their fists at us in this uh-huh. kind of way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, this should be... Um, We've had a big news day today. We and, have had a big news day. And yeah. actually, um, since we have a guest coming in at 930, if you folks want to give us a little ring-a-ding-ding, 202-521-1320, 202-521-1320, we will be taking your calls. Um, but yeah, major news day. Yeah, so far, so good. And we've had a great show. We've had really good guests. Scott Ritter, of course, in, in, incandescent in his typical way, giving mm-hmm. us clarity on everything else. We had Camilla. Coming on, having a conversation about China and South America. We are at 473 people right now. We're almost there. We are almost there. Friday. We're almost there. We even got feedback on your eulogy from yesterday. I mean, it's been a jam-packed show. Oh, really? Yeah. We got feedback? Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Madeline Albright spoke to me. Our medium basically came up and, you know, gave Mm -hmm. us, gave us, you know, a, a comment. Um, but so far, so good. I love um, fighting 33-2 in the chat. Farron, you didn't ask Camila if Joe Biden has a serious roundtable talk with Juan Guaido, the Mario Brothers, Lord Voldemort, the Sith Lord, and Betty Crocker about the shortage of energy. I'm disappointed. You know, fighting 33-2. I mean, honestly, we, we really should talk about the Juan Guaido stuff. I mean, oh. the United States shamefully ball face. Turn the Mario Brothers. Yeah, Mario Brothers. <laughs> and Betty like, Crocker. This guy is basically president of a country. What? What? How are you I'm unilaterally <laughs> just deciding this random guy that most of the people don't even know is just going to be in charge of the country from here on out? Utterly astonishing. And it's like nobody... I remember when Nancy Pelosi was talking to Juan Guaido, she was like, well, um, I guess you're the presumed president of Venezuela. No, he's not. And the very fact that you're even saying it that way gets across how utterly and entirely ridiculous this is. And all of them will pretend as if it's true. Mm-hmm. How weird is that? Imagine if Maduro comes out or Putin comes out and says, Nancy Pelosi is now the president of America. And she is the person that we're going to talk to. Oh, and we're going to allow the dollar reserves um, that belong to the United States to go to Nancy Pelosi. It would be insane. And then make the argument that because there was this huge protest when Donald Trump was elected, that that means that that legitimizes removing power from the president of the United States and giving it to Pelosi. Yeah. We would never accept no nonsense like that. And yet we're supposed to expect that that's supposed to take place in Venezuela as if. They don't have the capability of deciding who is going to be their elected leader. And we need a little bit of paternal racism to kind of make that, you know, work. We're only doing this for your own good. And then we were doing stuff like sanctions on the country and then turning around saying, hey, here's humanitarian aid. Keep your aid. Just get rid of the sanctions. Well, and here, here's another uh, little uh, a crack in thought for you. Um, when, you know, right now what they're saying with all of this oil and everything is that, oh, it's all of these oil guys that aren't going to let up and blah, blah, blah. And it's all the oil big wigs. Nope. And, and they're like, okay, well then instead of going to Brussels right now, why don't you sit down with all of these oil guys and discuss it? But here's a better idea, folks, because sometimes you can take some good ideas from your enemies. Okay. What was the first thing that Putin did when he got into office in the nineties? Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, what? Go off the oligarchs. The first thing he did is he got rid of all of the oil companies and he made it government run. Yeah. Which made it so that you didn't have all of these oil companies stiffing people and all what have you. It it was run by the government. Now, honestly, I don't know why this coffee is making me purple. Personally, today. I'm fine with having the energy sector be, look, I consider energy sector to be a vital resource. And because of such, that is one of those things that I would prefer to be under government auspices. 
And honestly, this like, an and that's the other thing is, is, is growing up. I mean, I was always told, no, you don't want the government. You know, like, more government is bad. More. I mean, because I grew yeah. up like not a Reagan baby, but I was more of a rush baby. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in like the most red county outside of Cook County. Yeah. And it was like the second most red county next to Orange County at the time mm-hmm. growing up. I was born in 86. So I had just uh, so I was born during Reagan. Youngin. But um, but no, but that's the one thing is, is that. You always would hear, you know, you need to keep things private because the government just messes it up. Yeah, no. Well, when it comes to oil, it kind of looks like the private companies mess it up. For example, you have, um, oh gosh, um, Stephen, um, uh, he's the guy that, that exposed um, Chevron uh, oh, when they um, had the oil thing. Belzinger. Stephen Donzinger, yeah, exposing them and was the lawyer for these people who Chevron, was a Chevron, right? Yeah. yeah, Chevron basically contaminated and... He's locked up. Yes. And he's the one that's having to sit in house arrest. As And, and mind you, they've, they just never put him in jail. Locked, they've never locked a lawyer up for stuff like this. Yeah. He's like the very first one, which goes to show how, oh, yeah, sit down with the big oil guys. They're never going to do that. And by the way, that They're wasn't never even a do that. state prosecution. That mm-hmm. was a private prosecution where the state didn't even want to take the case. And the judge gives it to a private law firm powered by Chevron, to go after him. And they haven't paid a dime to these people. No, billions of dollars. Not one dime. And that's where you look at it and it's like, okay, why are these oil companies, first of all, all over the world? You look at example two, Nigeria, huge with oil. We have all these private companies over there taking all their oil. The people see none of it. None of it. And we have enough oil here. I don't understand why we can't have a government takeover and have them and kick all these Chevrons and Exxons because that's what, again, that's what Putin did. The issue is ideology. And it and it changed the game yeah. and it made it more of a, a nationalized system. Um, but again, having that will be one of the first moves, it made it so these companies can't price gouge your people. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's just a thought. Look, just it's a, thought. a vital resource. And the way we do it now, it's basically built on profit. How maximize your profit. And so much of the gas that we produce in the United States is a global market. That stuff goes out of the country, meaning we don't have entire control. Biden doesn't have control over oil reserves in the same way, let's say, Russia or Saudi Arabia. We don't mm-hmm. own the gas reserves. Look, like I said, it's a vital resource. Um, that is one of those things. Energy production is one of those things that I would definitely have under the auspices of the government. And honestly, it would be kind of a better idea at this point because, one— you see all the enemies the United States has created. Yes. We're Saudi Arabia. Can we get some oil? No. Miss call. Wait. Venezuela. Juan Guaido. Oh, wait. Hang on. Maduro. <laughs> can we get some oil? <laughs> Miss call. I mean, like, we're going for all of these, like, all of our enemies. Like, you even had Saudi Arabia, the UAE, having this big summit with Egypt. Mm-hmm. I mean, the United oh, Syria. States. Syria. Well, and Egypt as well. Um, But, you know, you're having all of these countries meet together and it's like, hey, the United States, all of your friends at the cool kids table, like, aren't really, uh, you know, you have have Joe Biden yesterday saying, oh, NATO is the most united it's ever been. Really? Because if you talk to Germany? Yeah. Because they're kind of like, uh... We're not really united with you. Hungry. And we kind of yeah. want you to stay out of this. And then you have, you know, Venezuela and Bolivia and all these, as we just talked with Camille, you have these South American countries forming their own lunch table. You have Europe <laughs> forming their own lunch table. <laughs> right, right. You have Russia and China at their own lunch table. That are, they're, Hey, Saudi Arabia, come on over. We'll, we'll give you some of our French fries. You know, it's just one of these things where it's just like, come on. Yeah. The, the moves that we're making and then to gaslight the American people as if everything is okay. And here's how they're keeping people distracted. Yeah. Let's talk about what is a woman? And I get it. It's, <laughs> right, I right. get it. It's a very important question. Don't say gay. But not right now. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, there's a lot more things that, you know, need to be asked, but they, they start with the social issues. And when you start seeing these social issues pop up again, like in 2017 and even before the election as well, which then gets people censored because then, then people are going to talk about, well, I'm being censored. Well, people like Haley Toilet Flush. Toilet, out there. Oh, I like that. Toilet Flush. Well, that's mm-hmm. her name, right? That's her, I thought that was yeah, her nickname is. in college. Toilet flush, because, mm-hmm. you know, less than flush. Um, like her. T flush. Yeah, mm-hmm. T flush. Who's basically going out trying to get people removed. But hey, we don't have any other issues that avail us. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to talk about no. the, the homeless tent city outside the Capitol and how those people got out there? You don't want to go do some investigations on that? She doesn't want to do that. Got to leave the office that for that. That actually takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, got to leave the office for that. Yeah, it's just, it's... Something to be said, to put it mildly. <laughs> Let's Fighting do this. 30, 332. You, you're like a joke punchliner today. He goes, Farron, I get the feeling that Joe Biden is still waiting to hear from Tom on MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting 332. Let's take um, calls. The number is 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. We are trying to get 500. Definitely share it. Definitely right, like it. Dave. David. From South Carolina. What's going on, David? Good morning. How are y'all? Good morning. Better that you are joining us. What's the topic for today? Down. Hallelujah. Um, I was just going to say that the history of Latin America and the United States involvement is completely uh, overlooked, over painfully ignored. Um, basically, all the issues that... Um, Latin America faces stem to colonization and especially the U.S.'s involvement, all these like basically these United like companies like United Fruit Company, they would, yes, they would be in control of the government essentially. And to take it a step further, they would also finance right wing paramilitary groups. These drug lords provide a lot of money for them. You know, it's it's all interconnected. And it's just horrible and then then the kicker is they try you know the normal citizens try to flee that and come somewhere where they view as safer and they get locked up in these camps that um and then we blame them for it traces of all parties yeah and then we blame them i mean like when kamala harris goes down they can never talk about it honestly meaning they would say oh it's hurricanes it's weather it's gangs etc the part they leave out is U.S. policy. I mean, for God's sake, Hernandez, um, Hernandez in, what is it, Honduras, if I'm not mistaken. The guy was a narco drug lord that was running oh, yeah. the government a, a yeah, as a drug narco state. He was put in by us in a coup when the previous president was basically taken out in his PJs with Hillary Clinton being secretary of state. Seriously, he was. And they were like, that's not a coup. That's not a coup. Because under normal circumstances, it's the legal processes of taking a president out in his pajamas. That is basically the typical legal way to go. I guess my point is, in New York court, they are basically calling him a drug lord. But him saying, I'm trying to get cocaine into the nose of every gringo. This is our guy. And so when people are fleeing that, what do we say? Oh, it's their fault. Their government is problematic. Nonsense. And left-wing, left-wing, sorry, left-wing resistance groups like FARC are labeled as terrorists. It's just crazy. Thank you, David. I appreciate the call. Let's go to Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? How are you doing this morning? I um, I got a lot to get off my chest. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. A lot of that. Go for it, Tarif. All right. First, I'd like to say free Julian science is about him and every whistleblower on the planet, journalists. Right now, the so-called deep state or corrupt politicians, military, whatever, these large corporations, they are 
basically losing ground to the new multipolar world. They're weak right now. So the time to strike and hit them, the time to strike and hit them with articles of leaks of, of, of truth of, with facts is to do it right now, to put pressure on them, to free joining science, to put pressure on them, to look into my case, then with Mikey DeBakey, contaminated water and other military bases with contaminated water, is to, to, to release it now. And when you do that, you're going to expose a lot of corruption, a lot of BS was going on in this nation. And that's going to, and that's going to uh, basically, be, we're going to be hitting them hard with true facts, paperwork, dates and time, when this took place, when that took place, it forced the hand to even leak stuff on the MLK, JFK assassination. You do it now. The best time is do it now. The U.S. is on its back of its heels right now. They're weak. Do it now. It's the best time to start releasing information now. Free that man, Jordan Science. I've been going through eight years of hell. Scott Ridley and all the whistleblowers and truth tellers in the United States have been going through hell, too, in Britain and throughout the world. It's time to release the information now. My second comment, um, once that Bayou Lab stuff... Oh, yeah. Very... Uh, when that Bayou, stuff, Bayou Lab stuff came, oh, it's, uh, finally really started coming in out. I mean, now you got Rosemont Seneca investment thing. And I, and I have to gloat for a second. When Manila and I were filling in last week for Lee Stranahan on the backstory, we called it. We said, how much do you want to bet that Hunter Biden and all of them have something to do with this. It was the same day that Victoria Newland came out and said, yeah. oh, yeah, there's a biolabs there. Like right. an idiot. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they were like, shut up. Because notice we haven't seen her since. Yeah. It's I like think they offered part loud. They offered her somewhere, yeah. But yeah, Manila and I called it and just got to say, <laughs> hair flip, we were right. There's something more dangerous associated with this. I mean, congratulations, Starfish Clap for nailing it. She Joe nailed Biden it. She nailed it. Um, but if you look at what they're saying, they're asking questions like whether or not a, let's say, a, um, a chemical weapon strike that accidentally goes into a foreign country. Because now when the biolab stuff came up, immediately it turned around into, we think Russia may release a bioweapon. It's like, what? So the moment that they find biolabs that they attribute to you and China and these other countries are asking questions about it, you flip it into Russia may release a weapon. Now, on top of that, they're asking questions like, hey, what does NATO do if the fallout ends up hitting one of the other countries? And of course, they're calling it a weapon of mass destruction and everything else. The point I'm making here is the fact that they're asking that question about are they going to activate NATO if there's a chemical weapon strike? Now, think about what they did in Syria with the OPCW basically putting out a dodgy report after the initial scientists were scuttled away so they can confirm and validate the strike on Syria, a strike that had already taken place before the OPCW even went to investigate the place. My point is, this is dangerous, especially with NATO being involved. Tarif, please. Yeah, yeah. So it also to go along with that, um, is another company called Meta Biota. It was connected to the um, Rosemont um, Seneca group. Once these nations find out what's going on, they're going to sanction the hell out of the U.S. We're going to become isolated, just like the things we've done to the U.S. did to other nations happened to us. The shoe's going to be on the other foot. Exactly. And, once, and look, that uh, uh, Supreme Court nominee um, being questioned, and, and you got the, um, the elections coming up with the GOP and the uh, DNC is uh, desperate to gain power. Right now is the time to strike with 
information and stuff like that. You've got the Supreme Court nominee. You got they got other. I think other judges qualify more qualified than than Harvey. Tarif, Tarif, who is going to release that information? It, hey, we don't know. Join, I mean, excuse me, um, journalists. Whoever got files, start releasing them. That's time to do it. Is now. Tarif, thank you very much. We have several callers. We still have um, a ton of callers for today. So, Tarif, thank you very much. We have Brave from ATL. Brave is calling on time today. What's going on, Brave? Chocolate City. I call all the time. I call all the time every time. No, you're like two <laughs> seconds before the show closes. <laughs> it's like he's trying to get the last statement in. What's Everybody on, loves Brave? your commentary. That's why it's like, that's why I always chab you to call a little earlier. But no, what's on the topic? Um, What's on your mind today? Brave's getting all my airtime. No, I'm just playing. Uh, I just wanted to, <laughs> no, I just wanted to say uh, two things. Uh, I tweeted out uh, uh, Robert Barnes was on the Duran yesterday. Uh, it was a really good live stream yesterday, and uh, I, I tweeted it out. I tweeted it to you guys as well. Uh, maybe you guys can get Jack to put it uh, on the uh, on the page wherever the case is. But he had a Robert Barnes, who I'm usually touch and go with. Um, he, he really had an extremely good take on um, on this on this whole. Uh, Russia Ukraine thing, uh, even touch, especially touching on the history of it, and even um, you know how we've seen in the media we're talking whether um, uh, the Western media is giving this this uh, this false narrative that Putin couldn't have planned this or Putin got false information. Yeah, and, it was very weird and warped. But it's, right, he he um he, he goes he he totally just totally just destroys that. I mean, literally, this was this was a uh, analysis worthy of Scott Ritter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It, it was it was really I like the first forty the first forty forty five minutes I think gives you all you need to know he even gets into the um, which is most important he gets into the financial aspect and he and he, and he lays out how if you really pay attention to what what's being done and what has been done um, the Russians it, it, he outlines how the Russians really have not only planned this but um, the actions of Western leadership in, including Europe and of course the USA is playing right into their hands. I'm even going so far as to, as to touch on the money that was taken from Russia and how that's actually being used now as an example to others that hey these guys will take your money don't invest in the dollar. It's, I don't want to I don't want to um, I don't want to misrepresent his his uh, his his analysis because it was it was it was it was really good really good. So anybody should go and check that out. And then if I can very quickly, I just want to say that um, to, to Farron. Um, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, don't keep your head up because uh, journalism isn't dead. I mean, you look to you look to the standard bearers. We all look to the standard bearers and, and expect and hope that they would do what, what we believe that they should be doing, but they're not because they're a part of the system. So the system is going to support itself. So we can't expect them to do the right thing. We should have no expectation of it, right? Journalism isn't dead. No, I disagree with that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, finish. But I so disagree with that. Myerson, you have you guys, you have art, and what happened to RT was horrible, but RT is still going. You have citizen journalism. That's the real journalism. I mean, yes. And there's a journalism segment every day, and that's the most important thing. I know I do my little bit when it's not being taken off, off the air or shut down, and it's, and it's Facebook and Rumble and, all, and, and Twitter and all these places are chock full of citizen journalists and higher-level higher journalists. So it, it's not dead. It's just that we're looking for the standard bearers to do their job, but they're not going to do the job that we expect. You guys keep doing what you're doing. You guys are doing a great job. And all we can do, in the words of Dr. Matisse Desmond, all we can do is keep on informing people, and eventually, hopefully, they'll come out of the uh, mass formation they're stuck in. Brave and ATL, can't thank you enough. We appreciate it. Let's head over to Liz in Virginia. We've got uh, two more callers. We're going to try to bust through them. Liz in Virginia, what's on your mind? Hi. So I actually wanted to say something um, yesterday, but you guys got, guys didn't get to me, so we're going to rewind back to Madeline Albright. Let's Go do for it. it. <laughs> Go for it. So you guys made, like, a point about how, you know, like, you don't really see um, – 
like top government officials like going into um like going into schools anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. They can be like around college kids, high school kids, whatever. So I just wanted to put it out there that one of the few times that that actually does happen um, is every four years at the New Hampshire Student Primary Convention. Um, I went there during the 2016 elections because I was in a it was my undergrad university. Um, we had a U.S. campaigning class, which took us up there to campaign in those primaries. And it was like the one time where they had all of the candidates from um, 2016 there and like literally just coming in and pandering to us like college students. And what I thought was really interesting um the fact that a lot of these people, I personally felt like did not come prepared, whether like the students were on the left or the right or whatever, there were a couple of them that just really couldn't answer questions like that just would leave after asking hard hitting questions. And it's just like, y'all just walked into a room of about 600 political science majors. Like, what, I don't know what they expected. Um, and it's like they thought you were children or something. It's like, oh, it's just going to be, you know, these cute kids and they're not going to yeah, hit me anything. This is a George anything. W. Bush yeah. rating to kids, you yeah. know. <laughs> Right. And lastly, um, while I was there, I actually got to ask Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> I got to ask her a question. And what did you ask her? <laughs> so basically what I asked her was I was like, um, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Liz. Give her a chance. So I was just like, hey, so, you know, you started talking about criminal justice reform conveniently after Sanders, like, has already been talking about it. But regardless of that, like, you know, how I want to know how am I supposed to trust you with my vote on, like, keeping that promise for criminal justice reform when part of the reason why, like, we have the most incarcerated people um, in the world here in this country is because of policies that you in particular did, like, when you were governor and also, like, your husband's policies. Wow. So, like, so, and like, what I was looking for was at least just some accountability. Yeah. I felt like that's what I would need in order to take her, like, seriously, like, to consider my vote. And she just gave me, like, this roundabout answer that did not answer the question at all. And at that point, I was like, yep, I'm voting for Sanders. Like, wow. I would have asked, can we see the hat sauce? Yeah. <laughs> I want to see the hot sauce. Yeah. That's what I want to see. But you if, know what? If you have the hot sauce, you get my vote. I'm going I'm to look that up because, you know, I think one of us needs to go to that. Liz, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. And thanks for asking the hard-hitting questions and being that tough college student. We love it. Uh, let's head over to Daniel in San Antonio. Daniel, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, I called, uh, I think, last week or two weeks ago about my apathy about gas prices. And I wanted to tell Jamal, because I'm a truck driver, what I've been seeing since... Price has been up. Awesome. The thing I've been seeing the most is that a lot more truckers are driving at 65 miles an hour. There's this myth Wait, that... I don't understand. What's the significance Meaning you're of that? not using as much gas. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I've also noticed cars behind me tailgate me because I'm going 70 because I'm a company driver. I don't care about gas prices. The company's fitting the bill. Mm-hmm. And... I would see a lot more cars tailgate me because they think they stay in that trap. They're saving gas. Oh, wow. Now, okay, here's a question for you. Since you're a company guy and you said you don't have to worry about it, have there been talks from the company about slashing stuff like maybe your pay or just any slashes that you've seen to make up for these gas prices? It's almost like making you help cover the costs. No, but this has happened before. What they do is they 
I have a governor on my truck, so I can't go faster than 71 miles an hour. When I started in 2015, it was at 62 miles an hour. The way things are going, I'm going to be back at 62 miles an hour. Oh, I see. So they're basically forcing you to go certain speeds so they can quantify the amount of gas that they're going to use on average for Mm -hmm. a given time frame. Very interesting. The problem with that, you're, you're trying to get people to do the job that I'm doing right now. And that's um, very hard to do because you're away from your family, you're away from home. I'm in Missouri right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that that's I noticed that they were raising the, the, the speed uh, governors on the trucks throughout all the companies about four years ago because it was harder and harder to get truckers, people to be truck drivers. Oh, yeah. And I actually did a monologue here and a monologue on my old show, The News on RT America, a whole monologue on what's been going on with truckers and how people don't understand the impact that y'all have on our society. And I think they started to see it at the trucker protest. And we might be seeing it here too. If stuff gets really, really bad, what's the number one way you can start making a movement? As Jimmy Dore says, start with the truckers when people don't get their Amazon prime on time, you know, Daniel in San Antonio, you're doing God's work. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Let's head over to Adam in Virginia for our last caller, Adam in Virginia. Oh goodness. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. No pressure. No pressure at all. (laughs) What's up, Adam? This edition is brought to you by I know too much. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Remembering, remembering the uh, manipulation of the official message that was about the uh, the chemical weapon strikes in well, both of them really, but one that was more exposed through the OPCW. Exactly. In Syria, I have a parallel history related to the United States involvement and manufactured war of the Spanish American War, 1898. So when the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor. The U.S. investigation, officially done by the Navy, reported that they concluded it was a mine. The Spanish investigation concluded that it was an internal explosion. So did the captain of the USS Maine insist that it was something that happened internally. Now, here's the conspiracy theory part. Who was undersecretary of the U.S. Navy at that time? Asking the question, qui bono, who benefits? Teddy Roosevelt. Hmm. Hmm. I don't have any evidence that he had a hand to play in it. Yeah, but the newspaper itself basically bragged that they did, they're the one that basically started the Spanish-American War. They it, all Because you're right. All of those places were basically saying, you know. All over that. And his giant ego, he just sm- smothered it on the walls of saying, I, you know, I'm the greatest ever, la, la, la. Yeah. And uh, you know, how ironic that the Pulitzer Prize for excellent journalism came from Joseph Pulitzer, the other half of the yellow journalism that was manufacturing consent at home for that war. Wow, that is great. Incident. That is such a good reference. I love that. Advantage of. Man, I love that. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. That's a really awesome historical reference on that one. And, and you know what? You have Smedley Butler who actually called out how Teddy Roosevelt and the others pushed America into a lot of these wars. So it's a racket. It's yeah. a very good book. Uh, there Smedley you have Butler. it. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Great session for callers. We said yesterday we were going to give callers a chance to kind of call in. You're welcome. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome, all of you. But look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Bronzat, we will be back in a moment with a new guest on the show, kind of ish. Oh, Fault Lines, she's new anyway. <laughs> back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Fern Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video or rumble in this case. If you guys want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course by phone at 202 521 Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Coming up, we have a new guest um, for today, and she was nice enough to join us in studio with that massive ring sitting on her finger. Yeah. Um, it's, it's blinding me. I have a hard time seeing the screen. It's so bright. It's so bright. But Reese is an attorney and woman's advocate. She's founder of The Blush Project, as well as an accomplished author. Her books include The Babe's Guide to Winning in the Workplace, The Babe's Guide to Generational Wealth, The Babe's Guide to Divine Feminine Grace. Feminine Grace. That's so esoteric. Um, <laughs> and you can learn more about her and her accomplishments at mreeseeverson.com. We have Reese Everson. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's Absolutely. I need to pull the mic forward to you. Go for it. Go for it's it. Like she has a tiny voice. Oh, okay, I'll I'm use so my big girl voice. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, she is not shy. She will, uh-uh, girlfriend. Well, I, having a book called Babes Winning in the Workplace and Babes Guide to Generational Wealth. Yeah, I would imagine you, you would. You don't have to compromise. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And honestly, I read I read The, the Babes Guide to Wealth yeah. uh, recently. And let me tell you, it should be up there, I think, with, you know, I, I, gosh, what's the guy's name? He's a big um, money guy because I just got through reading his book, and I thought yours was actually better. Um, but it does give you a great idea as just far as a woman. Like you said, are you thriving or surviving? Yeah. And it's a mentality. And it's it's a, an excellent book. I recommend it to every lady and even gentleman out there as well. That's right. A babes guy doesn't necessarily have to stick with babes. I would imagine many of those things. You know, I've actually been wondering if I should retitle it just because I do think that, you know, there's there's information that we all need on how to navigate, especially with financial literacy um, in the workplace. I've actually had several men call me regarding uh, workplace retaliation, discrimination, harassment. Yeah. And so my my doors are open. Really. It's like, this book is kind of sexist. Exactly. It says <laughs> no. Well, you um, know, the, the truth <laughs> is, is that I, I know that there has been a need specifically for women addressing money. And because so many issues have come to me in my lifetime where I wasn't prepared to handle the conversation just because I didn't understand um, the nuances regarding money, um, whether it's being in the workplace and negotiating a salary or being in a situation where, you know, someone's coming after you and, you know, what the cost of uh, harassment and discrimination actually are to your career in a, in a you know, 10-year projection or mm-hmm. things of that nature, um, how to how to build back after you've had one of these setbacks, um, dealing with family and what happens when, you know, uh, there's a trust and how to protect yourself going into a situation after someone's died and you're inheriting property. I mean, these are situations that happen every day, and so many of us are just not prepared for it. So. Yeah, they don't teach that in college. No, no, that's don't. for sure. No, that's phenomenal. I mean, and like you say, you're speaking to issues that you yourself ran into and that you had to basically learn, understand, and then can communicate to other people who may be in those situations. No, that's great. And to do one of Farron's, I need to clap it up for myself because I called cryptocurrency back in uh, 2013. Starfish clap. Joe Biden's starfish clap. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
Um, so let's do this. Let's jump into the lawsuit. I find this lawsuit to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Donald lawsuit, Trump, Jamaro? Donald Damn. Trump is suing Hillary Clinton, the yes, DNC. What is it, Comey? Yes. Pretty much a motley crew of crooked Ten people. John Doe's. Yeah, right. I know, right? <laughs> Just random people. They were instrumental in creating and propagating the Trump and Russia stuff. And you can see all of this kind of vengeance and bow that Trump has pent up all of these years uh-huh. coming out in this lawsuit. I uh-huh. think it's like a hundred and some pages. Hundred Sprawling pages. <laughs> yes. Go after pretty Bruce much everybody. Like, some light reading this and, morning. And I love this part. It says, in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton and her cohort orchestrated an unthinkable plot, one that shocks the conscience and is an affront to this national democracy, the complaint says. Acting in concert, the defendants maliciously conspired to weave a false narrative that their Republican opponent, Donald J. Trump, got to put the J in, was colluding with a hostile foreign sovereignty. Love that part. The actions taken in furtherance of their scheme, falsifying evidence, deceiving law enforcement, exploiting access to highly sensitive data sources are so outrageous, subversive, and incendiary that even the events of Watergate pale in comparison. Love that line. Isn't it? <laughs> it is so, it's, it's so over the top. I love it. I love it. It's so legal Trump. Legal foreplay at its finest. Yes. <laughs> Just yes. Legal foreplay. I, I love as it. As a person who is a lover of the law, I mean, this is what you go to law school it, it for. Expressed. These are yeah. the moments. Outrage. To in be this, able to like, see this. The subtle, gold standard. Yeah, baby. you can feel it. It's a great <laughs> statement. What did you think about this lawsuit? Personally, I think this lawsuit is apt. I think it's on point. And whatever, let's say, wild stuff that Trump is putting out there, the crux of it is true. The crux of it is true. I wish he would have been very specific to the crux of it, but this is Trump, so fair enough. What are your thoughts about this lawsuit? Not to mention, what do you think the chances are? So, okay, well, the kernel of a lot of lies include truth. Yeah. Okay, so that's number one. But what do I think about the lawsuit? Well, we got to the the very first section where he breaks down his, his, his case and lays out his facts. He says, uh, Hillary, what I believe, HRCC becomes, and the DNC become one. Mm-hmm. That's the very first intro. And they do. And guess what? That's true. If you watched anything about the political, and not just to his detriment, to the detriment of Bernie Sanders. Right. Yep. I mean, we know enough to know that th- there's no lie there. So Donna Brazil you get what comes I'm saying? out. And, and what did she say? She was like, you know, there was the link that she found linking basically Hillary Clinton to controlling the DNC, In, uh, the announcements, the executive part of it, the communications, all of that stuff. They decided wrong. she was the front runner way before it was actually time for her to be de- deemed the front runner. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, to Bernie's detriment, and, and I appreciate the young lady because she said on uh, your last call, she said, listen, I asked Hillary a question at an event. And she couldn't answer me. She gave me the runaround. I'm a college student. I gave my vote to Bernie. There were a lot of young people who wanted the DNC to do right by them as a party. And the DNC decided, we don't care. We're going for establishment politics. We don't want to hear what it is that you want. You're the people. We don't care. You're even saying AOC to Joe Biden last night saying, look, you're losing us and you're going to lose us Bigly, as Trump would say. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's there's truth there, right? Yeah. And so even even opening the front door, um, his allegations are are as what I would call sturdy. Um, and you're getting people on your side just by coming in the door with that kind of truth. Which probably is a smart way to enter it. Yeah. You yeah. know, we're all in this together and, against yeah. her. 
you know? Yeah. Exactly. And he, he paints her as a villain, which it's not hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Considering uh, what happened, no. I think one, one of my favorite books, and I, I don't know why this is one of my favorite books, but it was um, Hillary versus Condi. And I don't know if anyone remembers that. I don't remember that no. one. Okay. One of the most fantastic books of all times, and everyone should read it. Um, it's written by a former uh, Clinton employee, and he goes through what would happen if there was a Condoleezza Rice and Clinton Hillary Clinton matchup. Interesting. Oh, Mor- Dick Morris and Eileen oh. McGann. Dick Morris is the one I was trying to talk about the other day that had the website talking about Clinton and everything else. Yeah. Yes. Later. Yeah. So, has, it's fascinating. He exactly. talks about Lewinsky. He talks about all of that stuff behind exactly. the scenes. Yes. His website and is so he does, I would say, like a 20-year run on who she is as a person, um, what her trajectory has been, and, and how she, like, stair steps. Bill's career, every chance, every time he rises, she rises, and and that she politically, you know, kind of changed her whole world to be what he was, and just this is a fascinating story about her. So, you know, and it's not a rain on Hillary parade, but it's more of just understanding that she believed that this was hers for the taking. This was her mark in history, her place, her chapter, her page, and no one was going to stop her. And I mean, don't get me wrong, that's like super rah-rah women and you you go, girl, you know, you're going to take this no matter what. If this belongs to you, break that glass ceiling and all that great stuff. At the same time, you're kind of looking like, like, this is it? This, this is what we want? Help! It almost felt like she thought that because she was a woman, she should just be given the presidency. Like, it's my turn. I mean, even the way that they were saying, it's my turn, it's my turn. Missing the point that, no, you got to get elected. Doesn't work that way. And people have to like you to get elected. Yeah, people have to like yeah. you to get elected. And uh, let me tell you, like, one of the things I was I was actually talking about this with Reese last week as well. Um, when you watch FX's impeachment, they show where it's her and Uma Abedin went after the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal comes forward, and she goes to talk to a school, uh, I think a women's college, I believe it might be a been of Wellesley where she graduated from. And she gets out of the speech, and Uma Abedin, obviously the characters, but she's like, How did it how did it go? And she goes, Ooh. And she goes, what and she goes your approval ratings have dropped so much and it's and that's where you kind of somewhat feel for her when you watch the show and and it comes out where they're over in Martha's Vineyard and she's like he's going to be sleeping in the guest house this is all after Monica Lewinsky and she says look I have pushed everything aside to help build you up so that I could come up with you and you do kind of and again, it's not a rain on her parade, but you, in some ways, I am a little empathetic with her as well because he kept messing up and he could not keep his you-know-what in his pants. I, I got to be honest. I don't consider you know? that raining on her parade. I, and honestly, I even considered it as a mark of um, affirmation. I think it's positive on some level. I mean, it's just, it just demonstrates, whatever you want to think of Clinton, a certain degree of determination for her to basically be committed, be aggressive in trying to accomplish what she believed she was owed. I respect that across the board, regardless of who's doing it, even though I don't necessarily like Clinton. And yeah, like you said, she had to deal with somewhat of a mess up that couldn't keep his little, mm-hmm. her little, little willing, little yeah, his little willing little to himself. The Kraken to himself, basically. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, but she, through all of this, very determined, bright, intelligent, and having an ability to basically politically claw her way to the top. And you could say she was using Bill Clinton to do it, but all things been equal, I would say they were using each other. Well, right. Yeah. Okay, but here's the thing. Dogged tenacity. That's the word I'm looking for, yeah. Okay. 
And determination is great. Dogged tenacity looks very different. And because America just is what it is, being the country that we are, and we have double standards, it just is what it is. She did not take into consideration that this is not a day where we, I mean, this is, I mean, this is a world where, you know, we want to see women succeed, but we also have certain expectations for how they comport themselves. And I know she hated it because they could always talk about what is she wearing today? And she's like, you wouldn't say that about a man. It's true. Right. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're do- but, but, but I do love her yeah. pantsuits. I'm not going to lie, but yeah. yeah you know, pants are very powerful. <laughs> very powerful. I even told my mom, I was like, say what you will about Hillary. Cause we watched it when my parents, when my mom and my sister were here over the weekend, I was like, say what you will about her. I love her pantsuits. By the same token, though, she's using that as a weapon also. Meaning, even though she's like, oh, I'm getting hit with the female stuff, by the same token, Bernie Sanders is running in the race. Bernie Sanders is sexist because he's running in the race with me. Like, stuff like that will come up, where sexism was being used as this attack piece, missing the point that it undermines the actual real sexism that basically takes place. But she was using it as a weapon, like nobody's business. I mean, and I remember when the question is, will she use it now in this lawsuit? I just, ah, this, this poor little woman, and I didn't know her. I mean, does she have a defense? Um, okay, so so the whole, okay, so first we start with the DNC, Mary's, um, Hillary, Clinton. Hillary Clinton, the RNC, I mean, RHCC. Um, then they move into the idea that um, they, comp- they put together this this huge story, and then they're, you know, pushing it through, um, you know, like uh, press releases and she and the DNC, Debbie Washerman Schultz and, you know, a lot of the, the longtime uh, DNC players are now pushing this narrative. Um, and then Sussman is pushing it in the legal the realm. Yeah. And so there's just this whole fabricated story. But at the same time, there's the question I have is what's the difference between a political campaign smear and, and like libel or slander. Yeah. And you get what I'm saying? Like because if you're in a political space, can you just flagrantly lie about somebody and know that you're lying about the person to do it? Is that illegal? <laughs> so, so slander is our malicious intent and to, to tell a lie knowing it's a lie. That's literally a component of the law. You have to literally tell a lie um, to someone's detriment knowing it's a lie. And so if that's the question, then yes. So whether we have the, a, the yeah. emails, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and so technically, you know, I get, <laughs> as, as I keep saying, you know, you go, you get to the bottom of what a lot of Donald Trump is alleging here and you're going, well, kind of true. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. This is sweet. Yeah. I mean, what it, it is. <laughs> and but, by the way, Comey <laughs> did go in, tell Trump, hey, there are these scandalous rumors about you. I mean, there's supposed to be a PP tape. There's all of this stuff. And he's like, but we're going to keep it hush hush. She goes out and then leaks it to the press immediately, which makes it seem, and the media um, on cue, the FBI has just told Donald Trump about a dossier and a video, et cetera, et cetera, to which the media is like, well, if the FBI is telling him about it, it has to be important. I mean, the FBI. I mean, like, it was amazing in the way that they were doing this. I mean, even having conversations about whether or not, what was it, the 25th Amendment or something, taking Trump out? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like, these were things that they were basically doing behind the scenes. And I still say, if Mueller would have came back with anything, they would have tried to use that as a justification to get rid of Trump, despite the fact that the un- underlying part of this was all— um, Conspiracy. But here's the question, though, that I have is here he sues Hillary Clinton and and, and it's basically for what? Slander? No. Well, okay. first of all, the lawsuit 
is a RICO charge or a RICO <laughs> c- uh, um, allegation. And and uh, and what you and okay, if you don't know this, conspiracy for RICO, allegedly joining an unthinkable plot. Yeah. Right, R- racketeering is usually something that the FBI charges. It's a federal criminal charge. So I'm still, I've got to get to the bottom of how uh-huh. he's alleging that yeah. she, because this is something that a government entity, a, a, a police entity or, some, or you know, can allege. So he's basically trying to put together the case and say, you need to go after her criminally. Because mm-hmm. RICO charges, when they have a lot of people that are a part of an organization, but they can't prove right. each individual part, but exactly. they know that the person is working so together. So you, you're, yeah. you're a spoke in the wheel exactly. of this very large criminal entity organization. And so it would be something like the mob or the mafia, you know, the mafia and that sort of thing. A lot of um, underworld organizations have been brought down with RICO charges. So is this kind of a way to kickstart like, hey, FBI, I'm look, suing her for RICO. Maybe you, you should, should look should into it. Your yeah, job. Exactly, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying that, um, and and really, what he's saying is, you know, they kept creating this narrative, and it came back that there's nothing there, and the reason that there's nothing there is because they knowingly manufactured it in order, and to my detriment, and it's cost me over twenty four million dollars. And you know, this is definite defamation. It's hurt my business in the past. It's hurt my business currently, and because of that, you know, I'm the president who's now marred have a smear campaign. Um, I've been in, um, they've impeached tra- twice. Impeached twi- <laughs> you know, so all of that was used to hurt me and my legacy as a president instead of being the Barack Obama where we're going to go to Chicago and build a museum and library in your honor. You know, they're like, uh, yeah, we, and so it's, you know, to his financial detriment, um, harmed his legacy and his name. And so he's saying like, you know, for their, for their involvement in this, they should all go down. And um, I was going to say, if it was for like something like libel or slander, you know, and if he's alleging before the election, I mean, he still won. So that's where I was going to say that would be a tough case to win since even though she lied about you, you still won. And if anything, it kind of worked in your favor. Um, But going forward, how do you think this case is going to wind out? I mean... I mean, when have we had a presidential nominee sue another presidential nominee? I can't think of one. I mean, how do you think it's going to play out? Um. Okay. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Let me see. I, mean, I gotta go in my, <laughs> my, my, my back to history, right? Because I know it was Gore versus oh, right. Bush versus Bush Gore. Gore. Bush v. Yeah. Gore. Okay. They went to I was the gonna say, Court. I remember. Yeah. The hanging chairs. Yes. Yeah. The chairs. Yes. 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 Okay. So there is precedent for this. Um, and this feels a little different because that felt that fight was over the election specifically, specific, like when they were trying right. to like get in office. Absolutely. Where this is like weirdly enough personal. You guys try, yeah. It's like a psyop yeah. over the country that tried to this is wicked impugn personal. my yeah, impugn my <laughs> and credibility. that was over electoral votes. This is a RICO charge. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right, right. So yeah, yeah. it's very different. How mm-hmm. weird is that? I didn't even know that people or private individuals can bring RICO charges like that. This is the first that I've seen. Okay. I'm not saying it's not doable, yeah. uh, but, you know, it's the first that I've seen. And so I, I I appreciate it because here's the truth of the matter. If you understand Washington politics, you understand that there's never a smoking gun and there's never anyone who's doing the whole bit. I know everybody likes that one show with Terry Carrie Washington. Uh, scandal? Where she, scandal, where she's like this 
you know, uh, dark figure of, of taking people down and she's the, the cleanup girl and she gets it done. But typically, if you know anything about Washington politics, there's very few people who they handle the whole thing. And there's always someone who does this part. There's someone who does this part. Yeah. There's someone who come in and comes in and does this part. So the slant, the, the uh, PR campaign is one person. The, the intern very well could be doing some research and have no idea what they're doing research. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. there's, there's literally maybe 20 people that are touching something and it's being, you know, just assigned and orchestrated or something to that effect. And so I kind of love that it's a Rico show. <laughs> yeah, you know, it seems it's to work. sounds you bad, but I kind of love it. You got it. Hillary, you got John Podesta, you got Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you got Uma Abedin, you got Bernie Sanders will probably be called in. I mean... As a, and yeah. he's a witness now. He's like, Bernie's going to be a witness. Bernie like, is going to be a witness. Tell us what you know, Bernie. They cheated me. They cheated my campaign. I was trying to do Medicare for all, and they cheated my campaign. You know, it's, it's vindication for so many. And so... And yet, no accountability. But, and here's the thing. It almost feels like this is a beneficial uh, point in history for Democrats. That's what's even strange to so? me. Why do you think that? Because I, I feel like... In, the accountability hasn't been there, mm-hmm. and the party has become its own. It's it's literally the worst reflection of itself, right? In so many ways, that to hold this mirror up to the DNC and show them who they've been will give them a chance to build who they could be. And I'm not even standing here. I'm standing here as a person who has no. I don't side with anyone at this point just because of my experience with the Democratic Party. I, I, I do want that. I think the people of America who vote for Democrats deserve better. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think they're going to see that. I could be wrong. Um, but the reflection in that mirror, I don't necessarily think if they're going to have that autopsy, if they haven't had that autopsy yet. It could go one of two ways. They could either say, damn, we really ugly or, wow, <laughs> we are so beautiful. Right? <laughs> and, you know, they're going to want to see themselves as beautiful. But everybody who w- witnessed that that Hillary Clinton election, they re- they they see the ha, 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 the cackling woman in the yeah. mirror. Mirror is like the beauty. What is it? Uh, Sleeping Beauty. Show me beauty. Be- mirror, mirror on the wall. And yeah. who's the fairest of them all? And you got Hillary sitting there like. Yeah. Not, not too well. <laughs> not, not too fair. But look, we got to close it. Reese, um, I want to thank you. Reese Everson. She's an attorney, women's advocate. She's a founder of Blush Project, as well as an accomplished author. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak. I want to thank the engineer. I want to thank the producer. And I want to thank all of you. And you guys have an awesome weekend. Thank you. Have a good one, guys. Thanks, folks. May the good news always be yours. Yes. Fault Lines.